0: I think the entire angle there was intimidating. You don't send 10 police officers to issue a fine. And being the person that I am, that sent me the opposite way. It's a very different world that we live in now. People have a lot more to lose. I decided, oh, maybe I can sell some steroids to pay for my own usage. And that was how it started. So I bumped into a, a guy that I would not seen for a couple of years. And he's like, have you ever considered selling anything else? And that very quickly escalated from small supply of steroids to buying wholesale amounts of Class A, Class B drugs, to selling that locally, to then sending that around the world, import and export. And I've just gone from selling a, a handful of steroids, making a hundred pound here and there, to dealing in hundreds of thousand pounds worth of wholesale steroids. At the time, I had a 15 bedroom apartment in Liverpool city centre, which, which is a whole other story. So, you know, the, the club had finished at four o'clock and the lights would go on. I'd be like, I've gone back to mine. So we would go back to the apartment and there'd just be unlimited drugs all over the place. And you know, you're the man, you're the man, you're the man. I went to prison and I was sentenced to six years. What the fuck have you done nick when i left prison they do this huge piece on me jersey police had some evidence on me that they'd been sitting on for many years and it was about a week after this article come out they come and got me i just looked through the paperwork and i was like this this couldn't be any more orchestrated if it tried and i hired the best lawyer on the island it cost me an absolute fortune and he said in 30 in odd years of, of doing this job at the top level he said i've never seen anything like this these exact words where you've pissed somebody off high up he's like that's all i can say
1: Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of The Modern Mind with today's guest, Mr Nick Whitcomb. Nick grew up in a single-parent household on the council estate in Merseyside and found himself falling in with the wrong crowd in his early teenage years. As a result of his upbringing, he was fiercely independent and actually found himself travelling to Paris to connect with the birthplace of Parkour. However, a series of injuries led him down a different path, a very different path in fact as he found himself working security on the doors in Liverpool, embroiled in the importation and exportation of drugs. Nick found himself learning quite a few harsh lessons quite quickly one of which being a prison sentence. Once he got out, he rebuilt his life from the ground up, connected with friends of old and started moving things forwards towards some very successful businesses, one of which being Bodytech, which was the gym that ultimately in 2020 Nick took a stand on against closure. This blew up all over the world, had global backing, had backing from multinationals. However, the rise in popularity and fame led to some historic charges in Jersey being dug up and Nick ultimately going back to prison. This is a very honest take on somebody that's had an eventful life. Nick is completely transparent about his experiences, his decisions. He owns every single one of them. He shares his opinions on the justice system. He shares his opinions on the mistakes he's made. He shares his opinions on what he wants his life to look like in the future. And they're all very insightful, balanced, and in many ways, unbiased. I think that's what made this such an exciting conversation for me today. And I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. (laughs) Nick.
0: How are we? I'm not too bad. Thank you, my man. Thanks you're, for
1: having me. Yeah, It's been a long time coming, I think, hasn't it? It's been a back and forth, but I thought we'd wait until we're in the, the lovely quaint setting of our new podcast studio. So, given that you're in the lovely quaint setting of our new podcast studio, weather. <laughs> you were complaining about the cold and the wind as you came through the door. How
0: different is it to the northwest currently? I am a proud Northerner. And if you were Southern, I'd give you the whole spiel of how good I am in cold weather, but Scotland does it different. It's, it's
1: funny, because being a Northerner... And then being more north than the north creates this bit of a grey area where nobody really knows what opinion to have. It's kind of just a mutual respect. If we're all cold, it's windy. Nobody likes it here. Yeah. Let's just let's just move on. I'm still in shorts (laughs) like a good northerner. You're next to the heater though. But I'm just in case anyone's wondering. He's not he's not he's not that hard. (laughs) (laughs) So I I first became aware of everything that you were doing when a lot of other people did as well. I think in in the World you you were very well known for developments up until that point but I really connected with your logical argument around why a gym should remain open during a very specific period of our lives and a lot's happened since then but a lot happened before that which ultimately informed why you were so passionate about these things and what built the confidence to be able to act like that so why then did you feel
0: in your community it was so important to keep gyms open a multitude of reasons really but first and foremost was <clears throat> and I'd, li- I'd like to say first and foremost was the physical and mental health side of things but that's that's not quite true it was originally simply just the data that governments had put forward they presented a piece of legislation that stated which industries were set to close and we went amongst them and then when boris made his announcement uh to the country he stated that we were amongst the industries that are due to close and having read that legislation back to front there was no mention of our sector whatsoever and that was the that was the catalyst for me going in deeper on why we should have stayed open in the first place and first and foremost these guys have put together this piece of legislation and we are not part of it um so that 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 kind of created the the ground for me to go a little bit deeper and you know we, we always had the Mental and physical health side of the argument that we could have used, but that would, and as we've seen later, further down the pandemic, pandemic that wasn't the priority of government by any, by any means. So, whilst that was a, a huge part of the argument that we had, and we were completely well within our rights in terms of scientific literature that we should have stayed open. It was in the country's best interest. It was in the interest of national health for us to stay open. But we didn't even we didn't really need that angle, and to think that the politicians were even going to take that seriously would have been a little bit naive at that point i think the the driving factor there was the infection data that you have based on our industry doesn't justify closeness full stop and that was the first angle that we went at and then when we when we gained the ear of the politicians and the public because of this uh, this error should we say that and then enabled us to come at it from the angle that actually really did matter, which was the physical and mental health angle. But, you know, as I say, in the first instance, if we'd have just gone on it from there, we'd have just looked like another industry saying, oh, you know, yeah. we should be open because we feel this way or that way. And, you know, as, as become very apparent through the pandemic, the priority was not national health. Um, so, you know, we were very fortunate that in the tier system, we had this piece of legislation that was incorrect and that enabled us to begin the conversation and then that opened, you know, a hundred and one different doors to us being able to use the, the the data and the scientific literature that government were putting out themselves, but nobody had really taken the time to read. And you know, had you stripped away the emotion and the you know the opinions and taken a completely objective look at it, we should never have closed as an industry, and we were paramount to survive in that pandemic and to national health as a whole, which you know in recent years or at least recent year in fact that has all come out in the press and you know we've, we've had support for the argument that we had at the time from the world health organization from the nhs from ons from the who so it, it it's you know it, it it's vindicating now it's very difficult at the time to get the arguments across whereas you know for people like yourself and i it just seemed the obvious answer was well if we're trying to better national health if we're trying to keep people's immune systems up then the last thing we should be doing is locking them inside isolating them telling them they shouldn't be going outside getting daylight exposure and they should be well we could be 50 percent off mcdonald's at the same time so you know it seemed very counterintuitive to me and it was difficult to understand how they'd even reach the conclusion of right well we need to close these industries down and that's what's going to be best to protect everybody and it's it's this was this was the tiered system that was in the october so we took a very different approach to the initial lockdown, which was March of 2020. Yep. At that point, I had no, I had no qualms with what government decided to do. In that, we had no idea what was coming. It was completely new. It could have been anything, and the, re- the right thing to do, at least in my opinion, was at the time to say, "Right, let's take a step back. Let's lock down for a few weeks till we know what this thing is." And it's just unfortunate that that theme had carried had carried on through without the data to support it. And that was the whole premise of our argument was that hang on, this, this this applied at the beginning and you made the right decision to do so. However, we're further down now. We have more data. We know what we should be doing, what we shouldn't be doing. And this, this isn't the right action at this time. Um, but obviously that was wrapped up in a lot of politics. And that's how I think we ended up making a lot of the wrong decisions at the time for the simple fact that it was public opinion that mattered rather than public health. And that was that's
1: always a danger to play with. The reason I start there in the chronology of your very (laughs) busy life thus far is because I think the confidence that you had to take that stand with the information that you just presented really shone through and actually brought others with you on that journey. But a lot of people didn't have that confidence. I think that's why it's important to to sort of rewind a little bit as to where that was built over the years for you to be able to be the one to. I've still got. That noise in my head of that little crackle on a police radio, just real share after real share after real share, where it was just that first little crackle of the police radio and you started talking to camera. It was all I saw for a couple of days. And when I was thinking about this podcast ahead of time, it just kept coming into my head, that little that little crackle. It was a bit of a twitch, which I can, I'm sure <laughs> will still keep you awake. But you grew up in the world. You, you you grew up local to where you were keeping your fighting to keep your gym open. But the years that came before that, a lot has happened. And that is a series of lessons which I can imagine underpin the confidence that you had to take a stand on this out of pride, out of passion, and actually out of a better understanding of the system at play and where you sat within it. So do you want to just talk us through exactly that, the context that led before essentially body tech and and where a lot of people, myself included, first heard about what you're up to?
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, my my history, as you say, is on the whirl. uh, And I grew up. 20 yards away from that original gym in fact literally the streets beside it um, and I am very proud to be northern to be from Merseyside and we have historically faced a lot of neglect from central government and that was you know that, that was a very uh, influential factor in what happened there but my my entire childhood growing up my teenage years all leading into into this this moment there's been a lot of I don't want to say a, a theme of anti-establishment in my life, but more a always this innate desire to ask why, to to question things where most people would not, and that's come from a very complicated childhood, a very complicated relationship with the educational system, um, and that that that's you know it all kind of led to that one point of the issues that I'd had with authority growing up, and I'd been in and out of trouble with school, been in and out of trouble with the police my entire life. So there's always been this kind of rift between the powers that be and myself. And it's never, it's never been so much a, as I say, it's never been anti-establishments as such. It's never been, I hate the police, I hate the system. It's just seeing a lot of unfairness and inequality in our area, you know, in my life. I'm wondering why people haven't questioned it more than they have. Um, and I have, you know, throughout my life and throughout my younger life, at least, I was failed a lot by the system. So I, I have a lot of first-hand experience in knowing that the system isn't perfect. And, uh, you know, the, the, there is there's an argument to be made that it would be impossible to create a perfect system. And I, I understand that. But it, there, there are a lot of problems in this world, a lot of problems with this country that would be an easy fix. That it, it's always been confusing to me as to why nobody's taking the action to make things right. And this was the COVID situation was kind of my first opportunity to take a stand against that. And it was likely a situation and an opportunity that I'd never have in my life again. We were, you know, Liverpool was put into the tiered system before anywhere else in the country. We were the first to be put to tier three, which was the the maximum stage at that time. That was the maximum regional lockdown that they were doing. And that was something that was very bizarre, because our infection rates didn't really represent what was going on there. And it's at the time they'd said, we're launching this tier three system. Liverpool's going to be the first to go. We're also reducing the rate of uh, furlough. So I think the rest of the country, and I forget the exact numbers. So the rest of the country was on say 80% or, or wherever it was up until we'd gone back out of like lockdown. They said, well, we'll put Liverpool back into lockdown and they're going to be on 63% furlough. Now, Having been in the national lockdown previously, and everybody was getting receiving eighty percent, and that was fair across the board. I think that Liverpool was going to be the first to be put back in with no with no closing date. No, you know, there was no sign of it, it it being undone. It seemed that we were being guinea pig to see if this would see if this would work, and see if people would just take the take the lesser amounts. You know, look, we're going to close everything down, but we're also not going to keep you, you know, above water. And we had our own. <clears throat> We had both of our city mayors come forward, discuss on the television, and like, look, we, our city is not going to survive. We're not going to survive. And historically, you know, there, there's been a lot of neglect from central government for Liverpool, and that's the, that's the environment that I was brought up in from a you know from a labour household, having gone through the you know the struggles of the earlier decades, and it's always been, you know, there's, there's a there's a you know certainly since the. Certainly, since the seventies and the eighties, there's been this tone in Liverpool of it's us versus central governments, and that there have been a lot of leaks over the years um, of tactical collapse from central government for Liverpool. So this kind of seemed like it was the recurring theme following on, and this this was an opportunity for me to stand up and say, "Look, well, almost this is this is what my family have been telling me about my entire life. This is the kind of north versus south divide. The wealth is in the south; it doesn't really matter what happens to the north." I thought this is my opportunity to stand up and and fight for what I've heard for the last 30 years from my family is that we 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 are neglected. You know, with with central government's resources, with their finances, we are neglected as a city, you know, we're not thought much of whatsoever. Um and that was my opportunity to say, no, this is this is this just isn't right. It simply isn't right. And it didn't sit well with me at all. And it, it it's I come from a family background where my nan and granddad were very proud Liverpoolians. They're from Anfield. Um, and their the whole, all the stories they tell me of old was people sticking together, you know, which is, which is something that's always kind of resonated with me because I haven't seen it too much growing up. It seems to be a sentiment that's been lost for whatever reason. Um, but they've always driven into me, look, you stick together, you stick together, you stick together. And that, that's how we win. That's how we do well. And this was the first opportunity I had to say, look, something is wrong here. And we can fight this if we fight it together. Unfortunately, it was in a it was in a climate where people had an appetite for that. People wanted to step up, but nobody was really taking that initial step. And it, I I I'm a risk taker by nature. I obviously have that under underlying question for authority. So everything kind of fed together and I, I made the decision to keep my business open. Um but I'm completely you know, respectable grounds for authority. It wasn't, wasn't I didn't want to, I didn't want to create a, a battle between myself and the local police or the local politicians because it certainly wasn't them that was making the decisions. And it, it was the entire angle that I took on that, especially with the, the clip that you're referring to the first day the police came and they were very heavy-handed. there had been, I don't know, 10 police officers maybe from the armed division of Liverpool police and they come to issue a civil fine. So they've sent armed response to come and issue a, you know, a, a fine for a civil matter. And I said to the police officers before I started recording, I said, look, gents, because they really didn't want to give me the fine. And over and over, it was like, Nick, please don't make us fine. You just close the doors. Just ask everyone to go home. You know, there's no reason for it to escalate. And, I, and I, I'd i had a conversation with the local gym owners the day before as to whether we were going to do this or not and whether we were going to stand together and the whole thing based on everybody saying, look, we're in. And I, I said the same. I said the same in the group. I said, look, I'm in if you're in. Everyone else said the same. Well, we're in if you're in. There was no there was no kind of indication as to who was going to be the first to kind of take that step. So it all rested on, you know, everyone being true to their word. So I had the police turn up at the premises the day after we announced what we were going to do. And they said, look, mate, we've got to give you a thousand pound fine. If you don't close now, but we want to give you every opportunity to close. I said, well, how often can you find me? And he said, well, it doubles. Every four hours we can give you another one. It's 1,000, 2,000, 4,000, 8,000. And then it caps at 10,000, but we can give you that 10,000 fine every four hours. So that would have been certain collapse. Business would have been gone in a matter of days. But that was—I'd given my word, and I made the phone call. I said to the—I said to the police officer, "I said, look, just give me two minutes." And I found one of the other gym owners, the closest one to me. I said, "Look, this is this is real. This is happening now." I said, "Are we in or are we out?" And I said, "Because if we're in, I'm going to do this right now, and it begins." I said, "But I need to know that you're behind me, and we're doing this no matter what." And it, uh, Thea is the lady's name I spoke to, Chris and Thea were in, uh, empowered in Upton. You're probably aware of it. Um, she said, we're in. We're all in. And they are diehard Northerners as well. It's You know, they, they are some of the few that I have close to me who I could bet my life on here are very much, if, if they give you their word, you know, it, it's worth its weight in gold. So I put the phone down, I said to the police officer, I said, look, gents, I appreciate you've got a job to do. I appreciate it, isn't you, that's, you know, that, that, that's instructed you to come down here today. I said, so I'm going to take the fine. I said, but before I do, I'm going to take a video of you all. I said, so out of respect, you want to make sure you're stood apart so you don't get any issues at work. Like, they, were, they were really cool guys. I took this video of the police officers and then panned up to the people, People's Gym sign at the back. And that will have been the first video. You've seen that went viral very quickly. Um, and the police officers were great. Don't get me wrong. Once we were off camera, they said, no, look, we know this is nonsense. We know we shouldn't be doing this. We know this is a waste of our time and resources. We know that you guys shouldn't be closed. We know that the legislation that's been put out doesn't isn't coherent with what's been said on television. He's like, but we've been asked by our boss's boss's boss to come down here today and give you this fine. You know, ten man strong.
1: And that that how did you feel committing to that, knowing that you had the backing of people around you and for the first maybe not the first time in your life, but in that setting. When, when sort of not to sound dramatic, but the, the fight came to you when for the for the previous thirty years you'd only really heard about it through family members and things. And I know growing up, single mother had you quite early. Lots of time in, as you mentioned, where the system had, had let you down. Very independent, very young with the parkour, which I'm sure we'll, we'll, we'll break down a little bit shortly. Did you feel pride and a sense of community in? that moment there that went beyond the actual premise of why you were doing things. Was it personally for you,
0: something that filled a bit of a gap? Definitely. And I think I'd been waiting for that for a long time. And and as I say, there's no, that's never going to happen in my life again. It's never happened before. And that was, if I hadn't taken that opportunity there and then I think I'd have kicked myself for the rest of my life. And you know, what, what developed from that, the, the bond that I developed with the people around me and the support that I had was, was you know, you, you, it was absolutely phenomenal. And, I, and I've never never experienced anything like that in my entire life. And, it, and I think if it wasn't for, I think the entire angle there was intimidate. That was the plan. You don't send 10 police officers to issue a fine with any other intention than intimidate. And being the person that I am, that sent me the opposite way. Because i seen through that as soon as they come through the door. There's 10 officers here for a civil matter. I said, this is this is an intimidation tactic. And that is the reason why if they'd have come, just two officers, and they'd have been, you know, as polite as they were, and just said, look, Nick, it's not a big deal. Just close. You know, go 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 through the avenues that you go into. You know, look to get it over to end. Everything will be okay. I'd have probably said, you know what, gents? Let everyone finish up. And then, yep. you know, we'll address this tomorrow. But they come in heavy-handed. And they come in heavy-handed whilst also being vocal about the fact that they didn't want to be there. And that to me was, that was the flame. I thought, okay, this is, this. they know, they are clearly intimidated enough that they know we're going to have an impact if we do this. And that's why they've sent so many and they assume that I'm going to back down because there's 10 police officers in the room and I'm going to say, oh no, I must automatically be in the wrong. But all I did is fuel me to think, we're on to something here. And then when I called to uh, a quick message in the WhatsApp chat and she's like, look, we're all in. We're actually doing this. And then, you know, from there, you know, that video went viral, five, six, seven million views in 24 hours. And that's the support we got from that was insane. And it wasn't just support from people. You know, it, it wasn't just a, 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 an echo chamber of similar people. We were being bombarded with messages from nurses, doctors, teachers, politicians. Everybody was seemingly behind us in what we were doing. And I think because of the approach that we were taking was completely scientific. It was, here's the data. There's nothing emotional here. It's not, we don't want to do lockdown because we don't like it or we don't get to do the things that we like. It is is the same data that governments are putting out. It does not support the decisions that they're making. Therefore, how can they, you know, how, how can they be making such rash decisions when their own data doesn't support the decisions they're making? How can they say that they are, you know, it, 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 seemed, it seemed very confusing that we had, Politicians making decisions that impacted the entire country you don't have a single degree of scientific literacy whatsoever, like, and that was that was quite concerning because then that makes you question everything else. And I think that was one of the the biggest, you know, one of the largest secondary impacts of the pandemic is people have started to question everything now. Yeah, like if you can lie to us, that, so that's
1: lasted as well, hasn't it? That that skepticism is is carried with us now, where you see yeah. things on the internet, and you think. People are just wanting to pull the thread on air, anything and everything now. They are, yeah.
0: And that's that's obviously created quite a dangerous situation because there are, there are, of course, things we, could, we should question. And then politicians do questionable things every single day. But there are then there on the flip side, there are genuine policies and genuine ideas that are now being pulled apart because governments have lied and misconstrued so much through COVID that they just have no trust anymore. And it's kind of self-inflicted, but it obviously impacts the rest of us that the general public now want to question absolutely everything because they've got this history of neglect and abuse and, you know, straight, straight out misinformation from government. And that's terrifying. But, you know, the, 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 that's the first time the whole incident, that was the first time I've seen what I've heard the tales of old from my family of, of unity. And this is what happens when people stick together and, back in our days when we all stood together on the picket lines, you know, this is, this is how we got things done. And I've never seen that in my life whatsoever. Obviously it's a very different world that we live in. Now people have a lot more to lose than before, but to have, to have got a sense of that seventies, eighties, unity and community, everything like that, that, that is one of the most empowering things that I've ever been part of in my entire life. And it made me really proud to be a human being not just proud to be Northern because we got, we got support across the board throughout the entire country. And that, that, that gave me a little bit of faith back in humanity that people haven't entirely given up on sticking together and the power that we do have when we stick together. Cause the, I think for the most part, you know, regardless of their intentions, government very much tried to divide through COVID because it's easier to get people to conform when they're divided. And to see so many people stand together against what the core narrative was, and and don't get me wrong, government the, the government made a lot of good decisions through COVID as well. It wasn't all bad by any by any stretch of the imagination, and it, it's it was obviously an unprecedented situation where it's going to be difficult for anyone to make the right decisions. And I'm I'm not naive to that, and I've said that all along. Um, but you know the the the, the power of community that we had, and the difference that we had, and the impact that we made in such a short space of time, I and mean, when we achieved. Six hundred and fifty thousand signatures on that online petition and that was in the space of a matter of weeks yep. you know and that, that they're numbers that you don't see no at all and that, that that's testament to you know the, the people of the country as a whole but our industry took a 10 i think for the positive during that during that time and it, it, it very much for an industry that's so heavily focused on the individual and progression and for the most part, being better than others, certainly in the, the bodybuilding realm of the fitness industry, I know not not you know not as a an entire package, but it, it's very competitive, and it is very individually driven. And to see that turn from people focusing on themselves to everybody acting acting in unison for the better of everyone like that, that was that was one of the most inspiring things I've ever witnessed in my entire life. And it was absolutely beautiful to see how how much the the industry come together in terms of everybody from your. You know, your first year gym user, straight through to your business owners, to your influencers, to your top level corporate giants, who all got involved, and everybody was singing from the same sheet, all together with one goal. And that's, we outside of a massive, you know, a massive political revolution. Where do we, where? Where is the last time you've seen that in this country? You you just yeah. don't see it, and that come from the fitness industry. It wasn't the hospitality industry that stepped up. You know, you know, it was it was no other, no other industry that stepped up the way that we did you know and i think that's a really i think that's something that we should be really proud of as as a whole as an industry that we're the ones that did that and we couldn't have done it without each other i couldn't have done it on my own the corporates couldn't have done it without the little people like everybody everybody from the bottom to the top was of paramount importance of winning that legislation being overturned and we did it and we're the only industry in the entire country that did it and i think that's something that's been i think that's something that's really special i think that's something that we've forgotten about too quickly because we've, you know, it, that, that's our opportunity to see quite how powerful we are. And as soon as we slip back into the focusing on our own lanes, we, you know, we kind of forget what it is that we can achieve if we all work together. And, it, you know, we are a very, very, very powerful industry.
1: Um, I, think it's, I think it's flipped the other way a little bit now. Or it's become almost more individualistic, competitive, and almost a bit more lost. Yeah, I was going to use the word vapid, but lost is a little bit more <laughs> kind. And I think it, it, it's something that, that we we like to we like to stay in our lane and sort of have our mission and our message, which is much more be your own hero, focus on what develops you as an individual, not for any reason externally driven. And that's been very rewarding for us personally, but we, we don't really jump into the argument on that side of the industry that seems to have swung the other way with the pendulum. But I think... It's important to reflect. I've heard you say you grew, you grew up with very little in the world. And I've always heard you refer to yourself as a happy, a happy child, which is, it, it comes from a periods of adversity throughout that. And parkour for you was a real turning point in your life where you found a community for the first time that probably gave you a real sense of purpose. And between the age of 19 and then over a decade later, when you found that sense of community again for the first time, I would imagine, I mean, I might be, I might be making assumptions there because the gap in the middle was probably a little bit more externally driven than internally community driven. But reflecting back on the way that you felt personally as an individual and what you actually wanted to achieve with yourself being, with that feeling of being a good person, how did the mission when you got the we're all in from Thea compare to the team environment that you found with parkour that brought you out of that? troubled teenager time of your life because I can see a lot of similarities on premise but the scale is
0: just so far apart yeah and it, it it's again as I say I think I was waiting for that opportunity because i'd lost I'd lost a lot lot of that in my life from coming away from parkour through injury and through the 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 alternate paths that I took um and i and I lost that when I come away from the parkour community which would have been Late two thousand and ten, early two thousand and eleven. I come from a a community of people where it's unlike anything I've really seen anywhere else in life, and that is, you know, the the from thirteen, fourteen when I went into that space. The entire parkour community it was rife with a certain type of people, a certain type of person. They were all very neurodivergent. You know, everybody's very hippie esque for lack of a better way to describe it. And the entire focus of that collective was the collective. It was, I want to see you get better because then we get better as a whole. It was very different to the fitness industry in that I want to be number one. Whereas the parkour community was, we all want to get better and we all want to help each other. And it was very, very team focused. And it was, there was there was sort of a very weird ethos there. I say weird, a very unique ethos there in the sense that, everybody kind of shared everything. Like if you had a, a resource, it was shared amongst the group. If you had, if one of us was fortunate enough to have a small amount of money for whatever reason, it was shared. You know, if we if we went to another city in the country or we went anywhere around the world, it was kind of not within our community because we had an online forum. You always had a bed. You'd stay on someone's sofa, somebody's mom would cook for you. And we were only young kids at the time. And that, that that's just a complete open door policy. And everybody was very open emotionally and there was no there was no there was no ego there at all because it was very i'd say it was bordering on spiritual you know everybody just wanted to get better in themselves and there was a lot of deep conversation a lot of team building and it was a very unique environment compared to the you know the average teenage lad up on neck of the woods it would be very you know drinking in the park talking about women girls whatever else and it, it was not you know we didn't have that at all it was very very different and that's that took me from a space of being a you know a, a young child from maybe I think I started kind of getting in trouble when I was around seven or eight years old on the council estate that we were living on at the time. I didn't really fit in in school. I was getting in a lot of trouble. Mum wasn't really around. Uh, she was only fifteen years older than me. I, I had quite a harsh experience when I was nine, going through ten. I was I had I was a victim of sexual abuse for about. 12 months maybe 18 months i don't remember too clearly how long that went on for um and that just made me spiral even worse and then about towards the end of that happening and i think this might have been the reason that it did end and I've, I've compartmentalized a lot of this so the you know the, the 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 details are somewhat blurry but when we moved out of that area when i was 10 and a half like that stopped and then I went into high school, and then for the first year of high school, I was in a lot of trouble, fighting all the time, always drama. I didn't feel like I fitted in the, the, the conventional academic system whatsoever. And then they isolated me in a, a porter cabin at the side of the school, the unit, they called it, and it had cage windows, big spiky fence around it. Um, and it was just me and one other in there, and that was kind of the alt- alternative school and that they put me in because I didn't fit in. And then shortly after they put me in there is when I found parkour. I just happened to bump into somebody one day in my local area and they were climbing around, messing about. And, I, and you know, I I, got involved. And it very quickly escalated from just climbing off rooftops and finding a reason to get chased by the police, just to cause havoc, just to run away. And we become aware of, or at least the, the the elder in our group become aware of a video on the internet of these guys based in just the south of, south of uh, Paris, a chap named David Bell. So he was the... You know the the creator of modern day parkour, and there was this one video on the internet, and I don't I don't even know if YouTube was around at the time. This might have been Vimeo or something similar. This this like one, yeah, 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 video, yeah. or yeah. it was downloaded on yeah. LimeWire or something like that. Yeah, um, there's just this one video, and it was to Eminem's uh, "Lose Yourself," so it'd have been around 2000. Yeah, every or every music video that. yeah, 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 every of video course. was, wasn't it. <laughs> and this was an entirely different thing. It's you know it, to, to watch it, it was it was an art form, and I had taken it from us being a group of kids climbing on rooftops, just trying to get in trouble to hang on, this is something really beautiful here. And the the, the elder in our group, Danny, he'd have been four or five years older than me. Very, very talented, very talented uh, athlete still to this day. And he kind of took the lead on that. And we were training for a year or so. And it took my focus. Like I just stopped going to school entirely. Um, and then about, about a year into this, I decided to travel to France on my own. So I'd have been about 14 at the time. And I got, uh, I think I bumped the train down to London, stayed in the the toilet cubicle the whole time on the the Virgin train from Lime Street to London Um, and managed to get on the Eurostar. I think I met met a friend of mine who was Danny's older brother, I think Chris, I think he helped me get onto the Eurostar. And I got the Eurostar to Charles de Gaulle to France i had spoken to an American guy that I met on the internet. He was about 10 years older than me. And he was going to the same place, lease the town is called. And this is the, the birthplace of Parkour. And he was going there to go to the the original places. There's a, there's a big rock climbing wall there that's been sectioned off for 20 years because two people fell off it and died. So it, it's just a, a, a feature. The Dam de Lac, it's called the Lady of the Lake. And it's just this huge monument surrounded by a lake. So I managed to get to Paris uh navigated their underground system. As I say, I'm mean, only 14 at this point. So it was extremely intimidating. Um, I meant to be in school, of course. Gets to this southern, you know, gets to the suburb of, of Paris, walk in the streets, and finally found this Formula One hotel. It was like £10 a night. Uh, I I'd to swear I met the American guy um really really nice fella so we 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 started you know exploring the the, the local local spots that we'd seen on these videos and just by a chance we bump into the original team uh david's team so we, we meet you know the the originators and they were very different as i say we're only a year into this and we're still very much cause havoc run away from the police that, that's the whole motto we meet these guys and they invite us to train with them and they, they, their english was okay it was broken bruised it was pretty good uh and we start doing conditioning in the park which I've never done before. So they have us do is lunges, press up stretches, all this type of stuff. And I was just like completely mind blown. And then to watch how these guys moved, they were world-class. So obviously I've come away from this entire experience and this is, you know, it was beautiful. We went on, used to call them night missions, but we've gone through Paris with these guys on the, on the rooftops of Paris, just ninjaing past people's windows whilst they're in bed. And, you know, it was, it was a, really you know really 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 incredible experience and i've come back from this trip to paris with an entirely different outlook on the sport and it's gone from just being mischievous and seeing if we can get chased by a police car or a helicopter or whatever else to we need to condition we need to work on our strength we need to work on our mountain resilience or physical resilience like this this is this is art and i brought that mentality back with me when i got back to the uk and i changed my life completely uh and we we started to get very very talented and we were the first team in the UK to be doing parkour and freerunning. So we got a we got a lot of commercial work quite quickly when we first started putting our our first videos up. We'd have still only been young, sixteen maybe seventeen. Uh, we started getting big jobs thrown out as Red Bull, Adidas, you name it. We were getting all the big boys because there was no one else doing it in the UK at the time, and it was just becoming a thing. So we were the only the only option. I'd like to say it was because we were the best, which we were at the time. But we were the best of the one team that was in the UK. So we used to get, you know, we we got all the work, and then for the for the four years, four or five years that followed, we had an incredible life, and we travelled the world, and we met some of the most fascinating people you'll ever meet, and we 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 literally went everywhere from America across to India. Like we we did absolutely everything. We worked for we worked in some really really uh, fascinating environments, and we got to meet people from all different cultures. This is why most of my you know, most of my most of the lads, most of the boys and girls my age are still in school, and we're traveling the world, seeing everything, experiencing anything you could possibly imagine. So that was that was very, you know, it helped me on my road to maturity significantly because you know I'm just from a little, little peninsula, in Merseyside where not a whole lot happens, and I've been thrown into the world, you know, headfirst. And it, you know, it, it was to have those opportunities and to have the the community around me that I had, and we'd anywhere we'd go in the world we'd it on this online forum that we get. And by the time we arrive, there's a hundred people there waiting for us, all just wanting to train together, eat together, talk, share stories, share ideas, share styles. And that was the happiest I've ever been in my entire life to this day. And we didn't really have a whole lot. Don't get me wrong. We get the odd job where we get paid well, but that would see us through to the, for the next month until we got it. And most of it would be spent on stupid stuff. Like we buy crash mats and trampolines and, you know, we buy trips to other areas and, it, you know, it, it's, it's, it, you know, we made some good money, but it never really went far, but it didn't matter. We didn't have, for the most part, we had nothing. And we had, we all used to wear the same green Primark jogging bottoms that were two pound. And that was us. And we'd uh, we'd wear a certain, a certain type of shoe called Kalenji and they used to sell them in decathlon. They were 12 pound a pair, but we'd go in in our old pair, swap them for a new pair, leave the old pair on the shelf and walk out. So we, we you know, we were living off nothing. We were, for the most part, we were shoplifting for our lunches and stuff like that, but nobody cared. Like there was no, Everybody was super happy, Uh, as I say to, and even to this day. And you know, I'm very fortunate in my finances these days. But still, I would give it all up now to go back to that in a heartbeat because nobody cared. It's simple. Yeah, it didn't matter what you had. It didn't matter why. Nobody was interested in the slightest. All that mattered was, have you got grip on the bottom of your shoes? And you're going to come and train for the day. We're just going to hang out, and we're just going to talk philosophy. We're just going to climb some roofs. We're just going to have a good time, and that was enough. There was something I heard you talk about elsewhere as well, where there
1: was one person specifically, a couple of years older than you, that was very religious, wasn't he? Danny. Danny. That was was him. Okay. And he he gave you one very specific bit of advice one day that you struggle to comprehend, but has really underpinned my understanding of who you are as a person now. Obviously, there's a lot that's happened since then. There's been lots of transition periods and things, but as has been demonstrated thus far in the conversation we've had and throughout all of the media that went out online during the pandemic... Very balanced, very logical, very kind and non-confrontational,
0: and I think that all came from one conversation with Danny, didn't it? It did, yeah. And Danny is one of the most inspiring men I've ever met in my entire life. And he's, as you say, he's a religious, he's a religious chap, and I'm the polar opposite. Um, however, you you couldn't you couldn't argue with the man's morals at all. I mean, and say what you say what you will for a religion, but for the most part, they are kind, good people. You know, with with a very with a very good, uh, very strong moral compass, and we had a. Uh, I'd lost my, I'd lost myself a little bit to this. It would have been just before we started to get all the positive opportunities, and I was a bit in a, in a bit of a rut. And you know, for 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 no better way to explain it, I was a bit of a bully at the time, and I was I was lashing out at people. And Danny had just come into my life. This was around the transitional period, and I was talking to him on uh, MSN. It might have even been Windows Messenger. It might have been that old um so we had a conversation he's like and i was telling him how i feel i don't know how we even arrived at that conversation he's like come and meet me i was like okay so we we get uh we meet up we're, we're in morton in my hometown we climb to the highest points on on one of the buildings there so we're you know we're, we're really high up sat on the ledge of this building just looking down watching people go about their business and it must have been about 10 o'clock at night he's like nick i, I want you to try something and it's going to sound ridiculous and you're going to want to give me a funny look and you're not going to want to do it. He's like, but I need you to trust me and I need you to try it. And I'm sat there thinking, what what religious spiel is he going to give me now? I can't, not today, Danny, please. No, I don't want to. not again. I'm not in a good space for this right now. And he just looks at me and he can see what I'm thinking. He's like, hear me out, trust me. And he was wise beyond his years. He was only maybe three, four years older than me, but he, he had the, the wisdom of a 70 year old man. And he says, I want you to go out from tomorrow. I want you to go out your way, to be kind to everybody, even those who aren't kind to you. Be decent, be happy, be positive. And he's like, doesn't matter what frame of mind you're in or how they approach you. I just want you to be kind and positive and see what happens. And I just kind of laughed it off at first. I just chuckled at him. I was like, All right, Danny. Nice try. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cute. And he just looks at me dead in the eye and he's just like, please, for me, just as a favor, he's like, You've got nothing to lose. Just just try this and see how it goes. I thought, you know what, I've got to lose. I didn't hold that much hope, at all. I was like, whatever, I'll do it for Danny because he inspires me. He's, he's one of the best athletes in the world. Let's try it. And from the next day, I applied that mentality and my life changed to something that didn't even remotely resemble what it was before. I may Maybe coincidence, maybe not. But from changing my outlook and the, my, my approach to other people, the year that followed, I went from this depressed, angry kid to being happy, content, and I had some of the biggest opportunities that I've ever had in my entire life thrown at me just because people wanted to be around the person that I was being. And that that's that stuck with me most of my entire life, and there is a period in which I lost that, and that probably lasted for about two years. But for most of my life, I've applied that logic, and it it's worked wonders for me. And I, I'm sure there's a degree of coincidence in there, but you you certainly can't argue the fact that people want to be around happy, positive people who are supportive. It's as simple as that. And you, you know, it, it, it's not entirely selfless in that. I spend a lot of my time trying to help other people because it makes me feel good. I don't just do it because it helps other people feel good. And I, you know, it, it, it's, I think a lot of people that take their angle, you know, trying to look like the martyr, I think it's quite, quite misleading. I, I do it because I like helping people, but I also do it because that makes me feel really good about myself. And that that's kind of the, that's kind of the theme that's carried through my life since the day that Danny had that conversation with me and it's been probably the most powerful lesson I've had my entire life. And it, it, it cost me nothing. It cost me absolutely nothing to just change the way that I approach people, change the way that I am with people. And, and you know, that, that, that's made me content. And I would say it's one of the driving factors behind my success is just taking that approach to life. And I'll, I'll be forever in debt to Danny for that conversation. And he's, he's moved, You've moved out to Scandinavia now, so we don't get to see him much at all. But I will, I'll, I will be forever in debt to that man for that lesson.
1: It was a knee injury that changed the environment a little bit, wasn't it? Because you mentioned there, there was a two-year period where you lost sight of that, you lost yourself a little bit, and that that came from a change of circumstances through injury, which is it is something that happens. It happened to me. It's why I got into self-driven health and fitness rather than playing rugby. Obviously, I I sort of chose a path that I had control over and it turned into a positive for me. I know Jamie's sitting there behind the the desk currently, has had injuries that really compromised the direction he's wanted to go in. I've got friends who spent 10 years trying to break through into this level of professional rugby. They've had injury here, injury there, lost the foot in the door there. And it can put you in a completely different set of circumstances where your worldview changes. And for you, having had a lot of independent development, I think it's probably fair to say, and quite a lot of it, quite fast tracked. You were put into a exposed position when you were about nineteen, weren't you? Yeah. Where I think you followed a path that you would have chosen... if you could have chosen to. You wouldn't have wouldn't have chosen to at the time, and and that was where you probably lost sight of that conversation
0: with Danny a little bit, wasn't it? Massively, yeah. And I, I lost my personality entirely through that time, and that that's again, this is some this is something that I think reaffirms my entire belief that having that type of lifestyle that I had previously is is what's fundamental to me being happy and, and the way that I am right now is because of the stark contrast between what happened next when I come away from that. And that was, I'd have been about 19 at the time, as you say, and I, I, I suffered quite uh, extensive injuries to my knee and I had to take some time out. And I took a step back from the parkour world and I managed my team briefly. As I stepped away and, you know, the doctor had said to me, look, you either take a year out now and you recover and, you, you know, you go through the, you know, the proper channels of rehab and you'll, you'll be okay or you can continue for another six months and then you're going to need surgery and then you're going to be out for two or three years. So it seemed like a no-brainer. I'm going to have to step back because obviously it was a lot of heavy impact at the time from a young age. So I, I took a step back and my thought process was, well, I'll join the local, local gym leisure center to sort of keep me fit whilst I can't do any heavy impact stuff. And as with everything in my life, there's no, there's no mild situations. Everything I do ends up extreme, whether extreme positive or extreme negative. There's no middle ground with my life at all. Uh, extreme is the recurring theme. So I've joined the gym, joined this local gym, local leisure centre, and this would have been late 2010, I think. So I've joined the local gym, trying to keep fit. I'd been there maybe eight weeks, put on a lot of size. Like, like uh, my my genetics favour muscular developments significantly so. And my, my entire generation above me and my family are thick set, big legs, and they've never been to the gym in their life. So I'm eight weeks into joining this this fitness uh, this leisure centre now, and I put on a lot of size. And it's only a council gym, so it's only a small gym. You know, the dumbbells max out at like twenty six kilo or whatever. Uh, and this guy approaches me and he's like, "How old are you?" i have been like nineteen at the time, maybe twenty. He's like, uh, "You should really compete," you know. I was like. What do you mean compete? He's like in bodybuilding. And I was, I was bewildered at the time. I was like, well, like Arnold, Arnold Swartenegger. Like I knew nothing about any of it at the time. This is obviously way before the Instagram boom of 2014. He's like, no, no, you really should. And before you know it, I'd been in the gym 12 weeks maybe. Then I'm on my first cycle of steroids. And then my entire focus switches from the parkour side of things because I couldn't, I wasn't involved anymore. I was just managing the team. And I kind of, I don't want to say it made me bitter, but it made me kind of resent the fact that I couldn't get involved. And that made me quite unhappy. And that pushed me in the direction of of pursuing this bodybuilding thing. Oh, this is new. This is something that I can do right now. This is something that I can put all my energy into. So I'm 12 weeks into this now. I'm on my first cycle of steroids. By the end of the first year, I think I'd probably put on four or five stone. Like I ballooned. Um, and then I competed shortly after in the, the National Open. And I won Junior Mr. Britain in 2012. Um, and then that very quickly escalated because this predated bodybuilding being popular. And it's obviously, it's, it's saturated now. But at the time, I was one of the only, you know, one of the only well-known juniors in the entire country. And I'm getting magazine features. I had a sponsorship with Optimum Nutrition. Like, this is similar to getting in early on the parkour scene. It was similar to what I'd done. And with the, with the bodybuilding scene, we were in early. I was getting a lot of attention. I was obviously pumping myself through a lot with a lot of uh, synthetic hormones and I was only 20 at the time. So I had all my own hormones thrown into, in, into the mix and then I've shut them down with 10, 15, 20 times worse uh, with the, you know, synthetic testosterone. So my, my entire brain chemistry is shifting at this point. And I've come from the, the parkour community where everything is about, you know, love and respect and community into you want to beat this guy on stage. You wanna be bigger, you wanna be stronger, you wanna be better, you want the next sponsorship, you want X, Y, and Z. And I started to lose my personality so quickly, and I become very ego-driven, very power-driven. And it, it it's it was at that point where I decided, oh, maybe I can sell some steroids to pay for my own, you know, my, my own usage. And that was how it started. I started selling a few steroids. And because I was, because I was quite well known, I had a lot of people asking me for it then, because this is very, very early days, as I say. Um, so then I started selling steroids wholesale, and then I tapped into my old parkour community to see who had who around the world. Who, do, you, do you know anyone that would X X, Y, and Z? So then I started exporting steroids. I was doing really well off it at the time to the point where I'd briefly taken a job with Vauxhall, Mo- Vauxhall Motors working on the assembly line there, building cars in Elzmier Port. Um, and I was making that much money from selling the steroids that I eventually just walked away from the job that I had there. And I took, a, I took a redundancy from Boxalls, and they gave me about 25000 to leave. Plus the money that I'd made from the steroids. And I come away from that and I had this, this, this big stack of money. I had maybe 20 grand that I'd had from the steroids that I'd been selling. 20 odd grand that I had from Boxalls. And then for whatever reason, I still don't know why I did this. The, the night I got my redundancy from Boxalls, I jumped on Lloyd's TSB online. Applied for a personal loan for 20 grand. Because I thought, I'm not going to work again. So let's just try it out now. Approved. So now I've got 65 grand. I went to the bank the next day, took the money out. So I've got this big lump of cash now. And just, just by pure coincidence, I bumped into a, a guy that I'd not seen for a couple of years. And we get talking about who's doing what or whatever. And I said, yeah, you know, I'm selling steroids now. I'm sending it here, there, and there. And he's like, well, have you ever considered selling anything else? I said, what are you talking about? So we, we, we get into a conversation about methadone, And he's like, oh, I've got the contact. I've been selling this for about a year now. There's loads of money to be made. He's like, how much money do you have? And I was like, well, I've got about 65 grand. And that very quickly escalated from Small supply of steroids to buying wholesale amounts of class A, class B drugs to selling that locally to then sending that around the world, import, export. And um, I got arrested not too long into that. I got arrested on a firearms charge in 2012. uh Police raided my house, stripped my car to pieces, looking for this firearm. They they. They obviously know I was selling drugs as well at the time. I was still sponsored by Optimum Nutrition, so in my spare bedroom in my house, it was full of protein because I, I didn't take it. They're sending me like it was a lot of money at the time. They're sending me like four grand's worth of protein a month, and this is back then. Uh, so I had this I had this spare bedroom, probably not too not not much smaller than this studio, and it was packed with two kilo tubs of protein because so I just I just didn't use protein yep. at all. I uh, still to this day don't really use protein powder. Um, so they've come in and assumed that was how I was signing the drugs. So you're talking maybe as much as 102 kilo tubs they've opened (laughs) every single one. You would, wouldn't you? (laughs) I mean, yeah, the tubs of powder and yeah, Yeah. all the pieces fitted. So they ripped every single container open, poured it everywhere, poured solvent in it all, took my oven apart, took my car apart. Um, They only found a small quantity of class B drugs, a couple of kilos, some cash. So they bailed me. My solicitor's advice at the time was, look, you need to get a job to make it look like you're trying to live a normal life. Now, the only job I knew I had quick access to through a friend was working security in Liverpool. So I then ended up as a doorman working in the middle of Liverpool city centre, which has then taken me from this gym guy who was selling steroids who just happened to have a mate who had a connection for drugs to being mixed in with some really heavy-duty characters. So then my network has expanded tenfold. They catch wind that I've got contacts all over the world that we can export to on all different, you know, on, on, on all manner of islands, shall we say. Um... So that escalated again, that job, and this is all in the space of six months. I've just gone from selling a a handful of steroids, making a hundred pounds here and there just to cover my own lot to dealing in hundreds of thousands of pounds worth of wholesale steroids. Uh a, a drugs, sorry. So that's escalated really, really quickly. I at this point had completely lost my personality. You wouldn't you wouldn't recognize physically or psychologically the person that I was then to the person I was, not twelve months previous. I looked completely different. I acted completely different. I'd started to lose all the people around me that I'd gained over the years through parkour and free running, all the really good people I had around me. They slowly started to step away from me. And at the time, because I was taking that many uh, recreational, not recreational, um, anabolic substances like Tremblone especially, I was abusing, which which is really damaging for your brain chemistry. Like it just, it you are just, you are, I mean, it obviously varies person to person, but for the most part, you are paranoid, overconfident, angry all the time. Um, it it it's whilst on the doors, whilst on the doors. So I'm thriving. I'm just waiting for drama yeah. all the time. Like I just I want to fight. And it's it, 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 it you, you get. It's very very bizarre. And I, I I don't understand the the mechanism mechanism of it exactly, but it, it's it it prohibits you. It prohibits your ability to produce serotonin and dopamine at at a normal rate. So you find it significantly more difficult to be happy, to feel content. So you're just angry all the time. You're frustrated all the time. Um, So, you know, it's changed me completely and people started dropping away. And in my eyes, that's a them issue. There's nothing wrong with me. I'm exactly the same person. I always was. I completely deluded as to what was going on because I had so much, you know, external validation coming in from the new people in my life. Cause I'm finishing on the doors at, at four o'clock or whatever. And I, I had a, at the time I had a fifteen-bedroom apartment in Liverpool City Centre, which which is a, a whole other story. So you know the the club had finished at four o'clock and the lights would go on. I'd be like everyone back to mine. So We'd all go back to the apartment and there'd just be unlimited drugs all over the place. And you know it, it, I had so many people latch onto me at that time. Mm which is quite easy to get lost in because you're like, you're the man, Nick, you're the man, you're the man, you're the man. You were know, you all these yes men and yes women around you who were just there for the, the free champagne and the free drugs and the lifestyle, but you don't see it at the time. And I got so, so, so lost in that. And it wasn't until I eventually got arrested on a, a, a charge relating to Jersey and the Channel Islands that I went to prison and I was sentenced to six years and the, you know i remember it like it was yesterday it's the same story i give to everybody because it, it it really was the you know the wake up factor was when, when you go into your cell in in jersey prison you get given like a foam canvas board to pin your photos to and it's maybe a meter and a half wide by a meter tall and when i first get in i'm receiving letters from all of my uh my new crowd oh nick you know, i'm so sorry what's happening cuz obviously it, it, in them circles and I cringe to look back on it now. But in them circles, knowing the guy that's just gone to jail, the the, the big guy, that that's the cool thing. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, there's there's obviously a lot of hype around the first four weeks that I went away being like, oh my mate, Nick's gone away. He's he's X, Y, and Z and whatever else. So for the first four to six weeks, say, I'm getting letters from everybody, all my new crowd. They're sending me in pictures, letters. So I've now got this canvas on the wall that I've covered in all this, all these photos, that kind of just stemmed the last 12 months. And it's all the champagne parties and the fancy cars and the new circles and pitches in clubs and fancy restaurants. And then about three, four months in, everybody starts to drop off. You know, the, the, the letters get less and less and it got to the point where probably by about the sixth month, I then started to have the odd letter drift in from my old parkour friends, one here, one there. And I wrote back, obviously, and I, I, it was around that time that I started to come around from the steroid abuse. So they made me go cold turkey in jail, I, you know, as they would. I was abusing benzodiazepines at the time as well, so I had to go. They had to wean me off benzodiazepines. So I was taking Valium quite uh, extensively at the time to combat the fact that you can't sleep taking Trembolone the amount of drugs that I was taking to counter the side effects of the other drugs that I was so taking. Cycle, it, yeah. it was a mess, yeah. So when I, got to, when I got to prison, I had to go cold turkey on the, the synthetic hormone abuse. They tapered me down on the benzodiazepine abuse. And then by the time I kind of come out the other side and that withdrawal process was horrific. Cry in my eyes. I was every single day, like just just not knowing what to do. So obviously my, my testosterone levels had flatlined. My estrogen levels were through the roof. You know, so that, that, that was... That was quite traumatic, but I'd say it's going to jail at times probably the best thing that's ever happened to me, you know, during the last kind of 10 years, because the, the path I was on, I'd have ended up dead or in a, you know, I had a jail sentence 10 times the uh, the length that I did get. So I've got, got this wall now and I get the odd, the odd letter coming through and I come back and forth with my parkour friends and, I, and every letter I reply to, I'm like, it'd be nice to hear from X, Y, and Z. So I get more and then they start sending me photos in. And then gradually, and it's not something that even registered with me at the time, I'll take a couple of photos down of the last 12 months of my life and I'll replace them with my couple that I've been sent in from my free-running friends. And for whatever reason, colour of days, maybe it was the antidepressants they had me on at the time, I didn't kind of recognise what was happening until it would until it had happened entirely. And that that wall, if you'd have taken the the first frame that I'd put up in the first kind of two months that I was there, and you put that side-by-side side with the picture board that I had six months in, there was not one picture and all of those photos of the new lifestyle I'd had, they'd all slowly been taken down piece by piece and replaced with pictures of old, my old free running network, you know, my old, my old, my old really special friends. And because it was, because it was quite progressive, you know, and it was steady. I didn't notice that transition until I was lying on my bed one day and I'm looking up and I'm reflecting. I'm like, wow, that is, there's not a single photo on there from when I first come in and there's, probably nobody left from that period who still contacts me and everybody that I have back in my life again is from my life that I had previous. And and that was that was the you know that that was the realization for me. That was the wake up moment of what the fuck have you done, Nick? Like what's happened the last year and a half? Like who have you even become? Like how have you sure I was injured and I had I had reason to be a, a little bit kind of you know a, a little bit uh, disappointed but I couldn't engage in that anymore. But to go from that extreme to the new extreme that I'd gone to, I was like, I can't ever allow that to happen again. No matter what it, no matter what it costs me, no matter what I've got to do to stay the person that I'd been for the 20 years prior to falling into this trap. I was like, I have to maintain that at all costs. And that was, that was six months into my sentence. So I had two and a half years left after that. And then them, them first six months were entirely necessary. Like I need, I needed that time in jail. To go through that process, to go through the, the the agony that the withdrawals were, to I needed to suffer to the extent that I did to remember who I was, and that that's you know uh, it's similar to the the impact that you know the the conversation that Danny and I had that had a similar kind of impact on me of this is this is the, the wake up moment now this is if you end up in this position again and you lose yourself like this again you may never come out of it. So you know the the, the next two and a half years that followed while I was still inside was just kind of. Sat on the bench waiting to get out because I, I I'd, I'd done I'd done the you know the, the the mental arithmetic at that point I was like right I'm me again now I'm I'm ready to go and then obviously the realization hits of well you've <laughs> actually not, got man. about a thousand days left yeah yeah, yeah. so you know the, the the two and a half years that that kind of followed that point was like right when I get out this is what I'm going to do you know I'm going I'm going to get I'm going to reconnect with that previous life that I had and I am not going to let them go no matter what it costs me like you would have to pry that that ethos and that community and the people I have now, you would have to pry them out of my dead fingers. You really would. Like, there is nothing in this world that's worth me losing what I gain from having that community around me. And I, I'm fortunate in that a lot of the original friends I had forgave me for the person that I'd become. And some took more time than others. And some of my closest, in fact, probably one of my top three best friends today took longer out of any of them. And it took him probably a year after me getting out to be like, that is you, isn't New it? You, you are in there, yeah. It is actually you. This isn't just like a short thing. You're, you're back. You're really you, and I, and I, and I respect him for making me work that much to get back there. Like from the contrast, that, as I say, I'd have gone from being this this pure person to this everything that I detested my entire life. Because, like I said, our our entire parkour community was just community. There was there was no there was no air for materialism or anything like that. We were the complete opposite. So to go to what we'd always kind of seen as the the other side, you know, but, you know it, that that was terrifying. Um, not just to to myself coming out the other side, but to the people around me to see me go from from what I was to what I then become was, you know. And I, as I say, I was happy to pay that penance. I was happily, I was happy to just take that year to. This is me, and I'm going to show you it's me, rather than just tell tell you it's me. So and, and I've been in a really good space since then, and uh, it's it's I wouldn't let that go for anything. I really wouldn't ever again. At this
1: point it's important to mention the show's sponsors as without them there would be no show. First up we have Vivo Bertha, who I've been wearing since January 2019 and you won't really catch me in anything else day to day. I'm I'm kind of morphing into a cartoon character at this point because I'm in the Novus pretty much every day. And whilst I do have a wide array of other options available at the house because Vivo covers you across pretty much every setting that you could imagine, I've just really chosen the Novus as my weapon of choice day-to-day, so much so that I've actually stockpiled for the future, as I love them that much. All vivos are wide, thin, and flexible, and have an open toe box as well as being zero drop, which is much more akin to being... You guessed it, barefoot. And this means that you can build your foot strength from the ground upwards. Study from the University of Liverpool in 2021 has indicated that you can improve your foot strength by up to 60% simply by wearing a pair of vivos day to day. So if you want to be jacked and tan in your day to day life and apply your feet to that equation, then vivos are the way to go. Generally speaking, my feet feel stronger, more robust, and I feel more in control of how I'm moving, running, and I'm just more comfortable on a day-to-day basis in them. And if you want to give them a go, you can use the code FERGUS20 until the end of 2023 to get 20% off. And if you're listening after that, then sorry, FERGUSVIVO will have to do as it will get you 15% off. Please do let me know how you get on over social media as well, as I would love to hear how much you love them. Next up, we have Days Brewing, whose alcohol-free lager and pale ale are brewed just down the road from me in East Lothian, but sold nationwide. And I like to keep a fully stocked fridge, because when I'm craving a beer at the end of a stressful day, or at the end of a long week, or maybe with a a takeaway on a Saturday night after a big training session, dare I say, when I'm inclined to reach for a beer, and there aren't any, but there is an alcohol-free one, I can have all of the ceremony of a beer, all of the ceremony of a pint, all of the enjoyment of a pint, without any of the downsides. Because it really doesn't take much alcohol for me these days for my cognitive ability, sleep and therefore overall recovery to be affected. So simply by giving myself access to icy cold, day's lager or pale ale, I am making sure that whenever I have that sort of inclination, I can just have an alcohol-free one, enjoy myself, get all that I want out of it without any of the downsides. That's not to say that I won't have an alcoholic beverage or or several every once in a while. It's coming up to Christmas time, which means that that'll be a bit more common. But generally speaking, day-to-day, week-to-week, I like to really minimize my alcohol intake for the sake of overall productivity, cognitive ability, sleep, and recovery. So if you'd like to do the same, then you can save yourself 20% off with the code MODERNMIND20 at checkout. And again, do please let me know how you get on over social media do you credit the prison system for that recovery or do you credit the community that you found the through community. working hard in your teenage years to get there definitely the community
0: the the prison system is shattered
1: it is absolutely so do you think
0: shattered. had you gone in
1: i mean this this is i guess a more of a commentary on the system as a whole do you think had you gone in with no taste of that community with the upbringing that you'd had you ever could have come back
0: around to live a normal fulfilled life no chance so the, and that's you know there's plenty of data to support that that wouldn't have been the case because you've only got to look at our re- reoffending stats so in this country i think our, our reconviction rate is about 60 percent and that's just those that get caught so 60 percent of those that walk out of those prison doors are going back to jail six zero yeah wow and that's just those that get caught do you have any comparisons in other countries that do it differently the only, I think the only, Finland, we are, Finland are very open with theirs. Aren't so they? Yeah, yeah. So Scandinavia as a whole do it really well. They focus on rehabilitation rather yeah. than punishment. Whereas in the West, I know we have, in terms of Western Europe, we have the highest prison rate per capita. Uh, whereas America are all worse than us. Okay. But in terms of Western Europe, we are the worst. And that's because you go into prison and think if, think for example, you're a 40 year old man, you have a wife, you have kids. For whatever reason, you're taking a different direction, struggling on bills, whatever. You decide to sell a, a small amount of class A drugs to your friends amongst your community, which regardless of your opinion on that, we're talking low scale, but we're talking class A drugs. You get arrested for that. You get six years in prison. Well, now you lose your job. The press have covered everything. So now your kids are getting harassed in school. Your wife can't handle the stress that she's getting from the kids getting harassed in school. You end up with a divorce. House gets sold kids don't want anything to do with you. You then spend your three years in prison. You come out to probation. You have no no sense of rehabilitation whatsoever. You come out, you can't get a job anywhere because you have to declare the fact you've been to jail for drugs. So nobody give you a job. So you've lost your marriage, your kids, your job, your life as a whole. You can't get another job. What are you left with? Where do you go? You go straight back to what you know. And that is unfortunately the situation we're in where it's a desperation cycle, isn't it? It is, yeah. What, what, what Until you can provide an alternative, people are just going to go back to what they know best. And if you know that you can make ends meet by doing X, that's what you're going to do. Until so someone provides you with Y, and, and that's, where, that's where our prison system falls apart because there is, there is no sense of education. There is no sense of purpose. You spend 23 and a half hours a day in a box with a stranger on a bunk bed watching daytime television. That is it. There is nothing else there whatsoever. And and that's and that's sad because you meet some really, and don't get me wrong, I would say the majority of people that I met aren't people that I would really associate with after the fact. However, there are 20, 30% of people that you meet in there who are just good people who've made a bad decision.
1: I think that's where the the counter argument always is. And people have different opinions on the upbringing, the privilege, the background, the support that these people have had to, to have such opinions. But... The example you've just given, the counter-argument, well, they made their choice, you reap what you sow. If that's come from a place of desperation, that the person saying you reap what you sow can't comprehend through a better background or a different background, it's very difficult to really pinpoint what the solution or the alternative is other than some sort of upheaval on preventing people from finding themselves in desperate positions in the first place. Because if you're saying there's 20, 30% 30 of people in there that you think we're good people that have made bad decisions. Everybody's made a bad decision in their life, but it's scale. And the scale of that will increase relative to the scale of the desperation in which their current circumstances dictate. So I'm not expecting you to have the answer, but in terms of from what you've seen with your experience and having the mind that you do to look at things through an analytical lens, what would be the changes that you would make
0: to try and have an impact on this? We need to follow the Scandinavian model. So, So the... And the Justice Sec has said this many times, although it certainly isn't practiced, is that the punishment, when you're sentenced for a crime, the punishment is prison. Whilst you're in prison, you're not meant to be punished further. Your punishment is having your civil liberties removed. You're having your freedom removed. That is the punishment. Whilst you're in jail, the focus is meant to be rehabilitation, reform, prepare you for the world that comes next. So you can come out a better person and you can have opportunities. But in this country, we don't get that. You have the punishment for prison then you're punished whilst you're in prison. Then you're punished when you get out of prison. And that's the issue that we have. And it's difficult. I mean, even... And in fairness to government, even if they do the right thing in terms of reform, and they give you opportunities, and they ensure that there's work available when you come out of prison and there's accommodation, you still have the battle with the press. once your name is in the press, you can be Googled forever. And it doesn't matter if the government have the best intentions. They can't force an employee, an employer to hire you who's not going to because they will just Google your name. And... You can't really blame that on the corporation itself because if I have two candidates looking for a job or if any employer has two candidates looking for a job and they have identical CVs and one's been to jail and one hasn't, where's the incentive to go for the person that's been incarcerated?
1: You're you're an employer now. Yes. Have you had this come across your desk and had to make that decision?
0: I have and I have four ex-offenders on my payroll for the simple fact that they have evidence to me that they've applied for over a hundred jobs and they've been declined from every single one because they've been transparent about their offense, albeit 10 years previous and they can't get a job anywhere else. Is it it a crime to withhold that or is it just- You are obligated to declare. Okay, okay. It's, It's changing somewhat, but if you get, say for example, if you get a sentence over four years, I think it is, your conviction remains unspent for life. So you have that for life. So it's only because of my understanding of that situation where I've seen lads who desperately want to do better and they have applied to absolutely everything they possibly can have been declined where I'm like, okay, well, I need to give this person an opportunity, otherwise they're never going to have one and they're just going to end up back where they are. Had I not had that personal experience in prison and seen how bad the system is as an employer, I'd look at that and go, well, I'm taking the safe bet. Why wouldn't I? Do you still have to fight with any sort of bias? When you, if you had two CVs in front of
1: you, would there be a part of you that you'd have to wrestle with just through societal conditioning? Or has your experience
0: removed that bias? I'm the polar opposite in that. And I had, and they used me as the poster boy in prison at one point for employments after prison. So I did a speech for uh, Mark and James Timpson of Timpson's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, one of Who are one of the
1: best best employers in the UK, aren't they? Yep, yeah, they yeah. are
0: indeed. For Timpson's for Virgin, and for McDonald's, I'd done a presentation for them whilst I was in prison because, as I said, they used me as the, the poster yeah. boy for reform, which is quite ironic because I think the system is absolutely broken to pieces. But that 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 then created opportunities for people to get work. So I, I was all for it. So, I, you know, I did a talk for them and I said, look, I said, there are certainly bad apples. There's no argument there. There's some people that are going to be lifetime criminals and that's just how it is. I said, but you also have to see that most of these lads in here because this was in a we'd progressed through the system at that point I was in an open prison, which is a little bit more relaxed you you start in a, a higher category so the the, the highest security is a category a and the lowest is a category d and you work your way through the system you get to a category d and it's an open jail so there's no no locks, no fences it's all very relaxed it's on a trust basis if you mess up you'll get thrown straight back into the higher security but this is where you have a and this only represents maybe half a percent of the prison population and there's there's about a hundred thousand people uh in prison at the minute in the uk um maybe i no maybe a little bit more maybe 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 four thousand of that population is in an open prison which is where you actually have an opportunity to do a little bit better and that, that's kind of the, the scandinavian model is very much open prisons and that's why they do so well um and i and, and i said to these directors i said look there's there's lads the lads here in this room who are looking for opportunities i said and this is, this is based on employment from prison. So you get to leave the prison in the morning, go to work, save some money off. The prison take 40% of your wages and they put that to like a victim fund. And you keep 60% in your bank for when you get out. So you have a, a nest egg of sort, And then there's an employment opportunity when you leave. So with Timpsons, for example, if you go to a, a Timpsons key maker or a shoemaker yep. or Max Spielman, chances are the person that you're that's serving you, there's a 50-50% chance that they are on day release from prison. And if you work well in that environment and you save up a little bit of money, that when you were released, Timson will honor that and they'll give you that job after after you're released, which is brilliant.
1: That's fantastic. Yeah, I didn't know that.
0: Yeah, yeah. So that, and, and they're the kind of big opportunities that, that are out there, but they're few and far between. And I said, look, if, you, if you're going to hire somebody from within prison and give them an opportunity, I said, look, they're not taking sick days. Because if you take a sick day in prison when you were meant to be going to work, you get penalized. You get what's called an IEP. You get a couple of them, and they're taking the television off you. You're taking your visits off you. they are taking, you you know, all of your privileges, you get taken away. I said, so you can't, you can't take a sick day. I said, people are desperate for money because the average wage in, wage in prison is £8 pounds per week. So you, you're on buttons, and you've got to decide what you do with that £8. Pounds. Do you spend it on tobacco or vapes if you're a smoker? Do you spend that on phone credits? Do you spend that on food? Because the, the nutrition in prison is dire, absolutely dire. So, you, you know, you have no daylight. So you get no vitamin D whatsoever. The nutrition is absolutely poor. You get no exercise whatsoever, no opportunities. And you're just watching cooking programs and reality TV and soaps all day long. So, you know, so you you are, your mind is mush. Um, I say, so look, the, the, the opportunity to go out and work, I feel like you have purpose. Again, I said, you're going to find some of the most loyal workers you're ever going to find because these are people that are desperate for opportunities. And if you find the right people, and don't get me wrong, one in every 20 may burn you. They may be an idiot. But if you're going to gain, Seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, hardworking, ambitious, grateful employees. Then, then surely it's worth it, and and surely, surely the, surely the employee retention is significantly higher when you're giving someone an opportunity that they desperately need versus somebody who's just jumping from job A to job B to job C. It's
1: just a different incentive structure, isn't it? it it's it's you can look at bonuses in one firm for people that don't have the same struggles, but an incentive structure for somebody that has nothing in that situation.
0: Just having the job is the incentive structure required. It's huge. But they, you know the, the government don't really want to touch it and they don't want the press that's associated to it. If something goes wrong. And the mentality, the mentality in prison is unfortunate. It's that when somebody messes something up, they take it away from everyone. Which mm. is isn't a and I wrote a piece for the governor in one of the last prisons I was in. And I said the, the mentality doesn't work at all. I said it I said it's it's you know, if somebody if they create a new incentive or a new opportunity for somebody. And 100 people are doing it, and one person messes up, and they do something stupid, they take that off 100 people. I said, uh, and that logic is kind of like, if you apply that to driving offenses, one person breaks the speed limit, we take cars off everybody. And that, that's the kind of mentality that you've got in prison. If one person abuses it, they'll take it off absolutely everybody. And that, that's that's backwards, and that's not how we work in normal society. But because they're so concerned of the press that might follow, oh, hmm. criminal given opportunity in those X, Y, and Z, and the pre- the press will gobble that up. So that so it, it would need to find an answer to find a solution to the, you know, the 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 I'd say the embarrassing re-offending rate that we've got in this country, you would need an effort in unison between both government and press to change the entire outlook on not every person with a criminal record is scum of the earth.
1: But but also acknowledging that some people could not be rehabilitated. Yeah. Because they're not bad apples.
0: And and that's and that's and do we tarnish everybody with the same brush or do we give people an opportunity? Because they paid their penance, their, their, their crime. They were sentenced for their crime and their punishment was to be apart from their family and society for so many years and have everything else stripped from them, which you can say that's just, that's fine. But that is their punishment done. That's the end. On the flip side of that, we are meant to treat them people as if they are now, I mean, to err on the side of caution, but they are human beings and they've made a mistake and they've had a whole lot of time to think over their mistakes do we just then say, no, we're not going to give opportunities to the to the millions of people in the country who've been to jail? Or do we say it's worth taking a chance and seeing who the ones are who really mess up just so that we can save the 16, 17, 18 out of the 20 that just want to go back to living a normal life and have an opportunity? Like if you, And as I said before, if you leave prison to absolutely nothing and there's no opportunities, you're just going to go back to prison. And what it would cost us, what it would cost the state To put measures in place, to put people in opportunities would be significantly less than it costs us to house that many prisoners all over again by failing them, same people. Hmm. So it would be a cost-effective solution. Similar to the the angle we took on the pandemic of prevention is is more efficient and more cost-effective than cure. Locking people up, and it costs on average, I think it's like 40 to 50,000 per prisoner per year to keep them inside. Obviously, that's taken into everything in consideration, staffing, food, energy. That is to have that much in resources say say only say only fifty percent of those people or even less are willing to take them opportunities at the other side then you're talking a hundred thousand people of forty fifty grand a pop that's significant you're telling me we can't allocate those resources into into a better rehabilitation reform system similar to that what they do in in Denmark and Finland and Sweden, and we'd be saving the country a fortune well, it's like it's
1: like you said before is essentially if you if you've spent your whole life, I mean, you, you, you probably would have spent a lot of your life in the circles that you were growing up. with. If you hadn't had access to parkour, you might not have known a life different. And the only reason that you came back to that is because you'd had exposure to it through getting on a train to Paris at 14. And that's a very bold and unique decision to be making. So if, if people can have exposures to things that they've never been fortunate enough to have exposure to, and that has put them in a desperate situation where they feel the need to make a choice that has obviously the impacts that we've discussed logic says to me if they're not the bad apples those are people that can be rehabilitated in a certain way or at the very least given a chance in that controlled environment where an assessment can then be made but I think you're right I've always reflected on this as painting everyone with a, you can't paint three people with the same brush stroke yeah, let alone no chance 100,000 people in one nation for example so what you said there as well from a punishment point of view is that yours didn't actually end really. And this is more recent. We don't, we don't spend much time on it cause I want to focus more on the future. Um, and what you've been doing in more recent years, but with the rise in popularity that came from going viral for keeping gyms open and all the positive outcomes that came from that, the Jersey and the channel islands that you mentioned earlier, the police department there brought up some historic charges from your past life that yes. then ended up sending you back to the institution in which we've just discussed. And, Again, don't want to spend too much on it, but I can imagine that given the penance and the development and forward motion that you have made as an individual, the second time must have hurt a lot more than the first because you didn't see yourself as deserving. Well, I know that you acknowledge your past and therefore yeah. what's done is done, but equally, you'd made a huge amount of positive impact. You've got people training and operating throughout that the pride that you felt for that community stand-up must have been taken away from you quite aggressively in a moment.
0: Yeah, it was. it was... It was very disheartening and it was a fall from grace that i don't think was just at the time um and what had happened there is obviously out the back of all the exposure I had through the pandemic i I'd become you know through through no through no choice or desire I'd, I'd started to become a, an advocate for the industry and an advocate for reform so not just on the on the health and fitness side of things but for reform and my entire journey of now everything that we've just discussed of going from this 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 good guy, a successful person, to taking a, an ultimate path, losing himself, coming back around full swing, then being a pillar of the community. I'd won a, a ton of awards at this point, out the back of the the pandemic sort of thing. Community based awards, but nominated for BBC Sports Personality Award. There was, there was a ton of them in it, and there was a lot of press around it then. Who wanted to wanted to. Wanted to cover the whole the rehabilitation story, and I was so for that because I thought, well, if I can just tell my story and evidence that, look, yeah, I might have been making a lot more money when I was doing what I was doing back in the day, and it was easy money. I was miserable, absolutely miserable, paranoid, and I, you know, I was I was in a really bad place. And then to to be to come out the other side and apply some of the skills that I'd developed during losing myself and apply them to you know, modern day, modern world business, and to be successful. I thought maybe maybe this is a statement for those who have kind of thought, well, I'm stuck on this path now. This is where I've got to go. You know, the, the, there's opportunities there. If you go hunting for them, don't get me wrong, they're not served to you on a silver platter by the government, as, as we just stated. But if you go looking for them, if you are, you know, if you're driven enough, then you can be there and you can, you can, you can turn your life back around again. So I thought there's no harm in me talking to the press. There's no harm in me being open because most people try and bury this type of stuff. No. Never happened you know, let's just sink it, never talk about it again. I thought, you know what? No, I'm not ashamed of it because of the process that I went through to get to where I am now. And I think that's valuable. So the the wise thing for me to have done, the wise thing for me to have done would have been to just not talk about it and not compromise. Do you wish you'd done that? That's a difficult one. And I still don't know the answer to that question. I still don't know the answer to that question. I have no regrets for the COVID situation for taking a stand there and that's obviously what's led to what I'm about to explain now but in terms of in terms of talking about it I'm undecided on that as of yet because I, I can't see any actual other than comments and messages on Instagram I can't see any direct positive influence that I've had in talking about this although there are some opportunities coming up this year it looks like I may have yet being yeah. the key detail exactly yeah. we don't know what downstream so I, yeah, yeah. so I, I don't want to there are opportunities in the pipeline for later this year which which may be quite significant so I started doing these press articles and then one in particular, I have Jersey, the Jersey Evening Press contact me. Nick, we want to cover your story again. We think it's amazing what you've done. You've turned your life around completely. We've read, they read my article in the New York Times. He said, look, you, you're an inspiration and we want to be able to show that to the island of Jersey because there is a, a strong culture of importing and export and drugs there because the commodity there has a high value because it's an island. I said, you know what, guys, let's do it. So they do this huge piece on me, and it, it runs across two days. So there was a, a big two-page spread on a Monday, and it followed with a big two-page spread on a Tuesday. And this is it. This is in print. And on Monday, across the the first and second page, it read from free runner to drug runner, and it was the whole first fifty percent of my story. Yep. And then the second day on the Tuesday, they printed uh, from prison inmate to community hero. And it encapsulated everything beautifully. It was honest. It was accurate. It was fair. It wasn't uh, embellishing at all. It was, these are the facts. This is the journey he's been on. He's been very open with us. This is what he did. Admits to it completely. This is where he is now. This is how we got there. He's successful now. Has X, Y, and Z business. You know, he, he, he's worth X amount. Um, and I thought, that's that's really positive, And I was really proud of the piece. Uh, but what had actually happened behind the scenes is... Jersey police, Jersey Customs at least, had some evidence on me that they'd been sitting on for many years. And they'd done nothing with it because it was a small cannabis charge, which ordinarily in any other situation wouldn't have been pursued. Certainly not to the extent of getting a European arrest warrant or anything like that. So they've sat on this for years and done nothing with it because why would we? It's not worth anything. No one's going to go to jail over it. I obviously then reach national press, global press. Jersey Evening Post run this article. Yeah, you're pissing in their front garden a little bit. I am, yes. The way they see it. Yeah, that's exactly how they see it. Yeah, look, look, look at this, look at this kid that's come from nothing, all over the news, and now he's got X, Y, and Z. And you know, we don't, we don't like him. Let's make an example out of him. He's got all this press around him. And Jersey, a very, it's a very bizarre island. It's only nine by five miles, population about one hundred and thirty thousand, and they are, they suffer from short man syndrome because they're so small. They really want to, you know, we want to make ourselves known. So they see me as an opportunity for some cheap press. So they dug this out of the archives, years old. And when I eventually got my, after my arrest, which come a few months after this article, I get my disclosure pack, which is the evidence bundle that the prosecution has against you. They have to disclose everything. And it was about a week after this article come out that you, you, you get the whole timeline of the, of the investigation. So you get all the early stuff when you first found the evidence and then it goes quiet for years and they do nothing with it. And the article comes out a week later, the investigations kick back up and they apply for an arrest warrant and everything else, and then they come and arrest me. And uh, they come and got me. And when I, when I got my depth, so I just I, I just looked through the paperwork and I was like, this this couldn't be any more orchestrated if it tried. Like they could have at least tried to hide it a little bit. Uh, yeah, so so the the press the press ate me alive because it, you know the the information was completely misconstrued. There was no kind of obvious timeline put there. There was no reference to what had happened since, and the press absolutely butchered me because obviously my the last the last chunk of press I'd had prior to that was everything from the daily mail to the new york times covering this angle of small gym in liverpool defeats government yeah so that you know the whole tone there is anti-establishment even though that wasn't the case it was we were just pro science we went anti government we went anti covid we were just pro data pro science community hero essentially was the narrative that, it, yeah. it was yeah and they didn't like that because they they'd had to yield and change legislation so there was already this this kind of feeling of or at least I was kind of sat waiting thinking we've got away with this too easy. So they arrest me and they, you know, it's not worth my energy to go over the the entire story again, but it was the most a kangaroo court is the best way to describe it. And they, for the first time in Jersey history, as we, you know, we had a conversation before we jumped on, there are a double jeopardy for, for, all intents and purposes. They charged me twice for the same offense, which had never happened in the history of Jersey courts. In the in the hundreds and hundreds of years that court has been active, it had never happened before. It had never happened since. So they gave me, for the two charges, they gave, for one of them, they gave me three times the highest sentence that had ever been dished out in Jersey. This is for a cannabis offense. And then they added an additional charge on top, which then took me to about four, five, six times the sentence that I should have got for this particular crime. They took no consideration for all the work that I'd done since I had references from candidates for London mayor, top medical people, executives, you name it. You couldn't have had a better mitigation bundle if you tried. And I hired the best lawyer on the island. It cost me an absolute fortune. And he said, Nick, in my entire history, in my entire career, because he, he prosecutes for the state, so he's one of theirs. And he said, in 30-odd in years of, of doing this job at the top level, he said, I've never seen anything like this. He said his exact words were, you've pissed somebody off high up. He's like, and that's all I can say. I don't know if he was alluding to the fact that he knew something there, but he he wasn't very clear. He, he just said, "Trust me, you you pissed somebody off who's who's got some influence." So that, that that was a really tough time, and that was a massive fall from grace because I I couldn't counter the narrative that the press were pushing, which was taking everything completely out of context. And I I, I was nowhere to be seen. Like I couldn't I couldn't share my side of the story. I couldn't. Yeah. It wasn't until I got out that I could say, "Right, look, I'm going to publish my court documents now, and everybody's going to see the truth." But in the meantime, I've had eighteen months of being eaten alive by. You know, the, the, by the national press, by the Trinity Group, especially which is uh, Mirror PLC now, I think. So you've got like, the, the Mirror, the Liverpool Echo, the the the, the former uh, uh, Maxwell conglomerate, They're all the same. So once one one of them runs with the article, they all do. Yeah. So once you've got misinformation in one entity, they that's all copy disseminates. It. Yeah. Which so, in, a, in a Google search bar can be quite dangerous. Yeah, and that's caused me. So many issues coming back around the other side, and it—it's that's that to say to say it's hamstrung my my life would probably be an understatement. It 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 has crippled my progression moving forward Um, because it, it, it as you say it is it is a simple Google and you come up with terms like money laundering with my name it. and i've never been charged with money laundering my entire life and i it wasn't until i got out that i could publish my actual court documents i was like look there's no i've never been charged for this in my entire life this is this is complete slander but if you're a bank or you're a commercial bank or you're a commercial lender or, or you're a or you have a property portfolio and i'm looking to acquire a building to you know to put a put a gym in there you just google my name and straight away you get them words and that's crippled me so so badly and i thought I originally thought I was on what's called a politically exposed person list and that's why I was having so, so many issues and I've had bank accounts shut down. I've had my insurance cancelled. I have, I have been absolutely crippled. And the key detail being this is all since you have yes. been essentially
1: spat out by the justice system and thus job yeah. done. So please, please re yourself with day-to-day life but institutions out with the ones that essentially have the jurisdiction to be able to pass punishment are punishing you.
0: Yes. And and it all all kind of happened quite fast. And I had, we have a a direct debit collections company that collects the memberships for our gyms. It's called GoCardless. And we had had multiple bank accounts separate to that. I have my car insurance. So all within the space of eight days, I have an email from GoCardless. So they collect about 3,000 direct debits every month for us. They email me and say, due to background and media checks, we're closing all of your accounts from today. Any money taken from customers is going to be refunded. Bearing in mind to transfer a, a a bulk direct debit mandate, you're looking at six weeks. So you've got 3,000 members there paying 40 pounds a pop each. So, you, you know, you, you're talking 100 grand a month being stripped away from us with no way to replace that. And then, so that, that was on, say, the Monday. On the Wednesday, I get an email from the bank who closed all your accounts immediately, personal and business send us the account details of where you'd like your money refunded to. So we lose our direct debit collections company. We lose all of our bank accounts, business and personal. So I have, I have nowhere to put any money whatsoever. I get an email from my car insurance to say that due to my offense, my insurance is going to go up from £1,700 to thirteen and a pounds just because I've been to jail. When I queried them on that, I said, well, why is that? I said, oh, well, you're... Uh, There'll be some data somewhere to evidence that if you've been to prison, then you're at higher risk of a crash. I was like, okay, well, can you cite the study where that's been evidenced? Well, it's not our policy to hand that out. Okay, of course it's not. But that's it. You've got no say in the matter whatsoever. That's as simple as it is. That happens. Then we have the regional councils at one of the buildings that I just moved into. So this is all in the space of the same week. We'd moved in, really successful new gym launch. Uh, contacted by the council to say that we don't have permission to operate there, and I said, "Well, we do because it says on your website here, the, and here, here, and here that it's the accepted use for what we need." Oh, well, if you look back to 1978, it actually wasn't given the correct class at the time. Therefore, you now need to apply for retrospective planning, uh, planning which you which you, there's no guarantee you're going to get. Uh, so that was maybe on the. Th- Thursday and around that same week, this is the industrial estate that we've just gone on to. So when we when we acquired this building, we've acquired it on the basis of the X amount of parking there, but there's also a lot of overspill on the roads. Huge industrial estate. It's been there 50, 60 years, never any parking issues. Within a matter of days of me signing the lease, the entire industrial estate is flooded with double yellow lines across entrances everywhere. Everywhere we wouldn't even ordinarily have double yellow lines, they put them everywhere. I had a conversation with the local mayor. He said, Nick, I've spoken to regional council. Nobody knows how they've ended up there. Nobody has a clue. There's no paper trail. They've clearly been put down in error. However, they've now applied for them to be enforced. So all this string of events is all in the space of a week.
1: Wasn't this when you got the dumbbell back as well?
0: Yeah. There we go. (laughs) So I I had imported the equipment from China to the UK in my name because wherever I got to hide. Uh, It gets stopped at the border and customs pull it aside, they see they it, sees it with the intention of searching it i get notified and i say well okay I search it thoroughly and they said oh we're gonna we're gonna conduct x-rays and whatever else so i was like go for it i don't know what you're expecting to find i'll like, put it in my name for a reason if i was going to import a container full of drugs you think i put it in my name <laughs> and import it into <laughs> liverpool uh but i said look go for it go nuts do whatever you need to do so they they keep the containers for three weeks And then I get an email to say that you owe us £25,000 in search fees. And I was like, I'm sorry, what? There must be an error here. Oh, no, no. Uh, So we're charging you for three weeks worth of storage while we searched it. We're charging you for the x-rays. We're charging you for the manpower to search. We're charging you for the forklift that we use to take the boxes out to search. So we now want £25,000 off you. Or if you don't pay, for every day you don't pay, it's an extra £600 per day. And if it gets to a certain amount, we'll auction off your equipment and you'll still owe us the money. So you, you tell me how that works. If the police come and raid your house on poor information and they smash the place to pieces, because as, as you've seen on my Instagram, they sawn one of my dumbbells in half they, and
1: it is sawn. It, it is, is literally it, it, sawn. It is, it is. That's not the, uh, an angry dramatization. It, there is no way that could have been cut other than with a saw. Yeah,
0: so they've sawn it in half. They boil <laughs> washed it in acid first to take the rubber off it. Then they've sawn it in half. They've extra-rayed everything else. they damaged all sorts. They've ripped it to pieces, then couldn't fit it back in the containers in the first place. So then we had to pay extra on top of the 25 grand to have it collected on a curtain side uh, wagon because they couldn't get the, containers, the boxes back into the container they took it out of. And that was our bill again. So we're up to about 26 grand now. So we had to pay that. We had no choice. Otherwise, they'd have walked in the equipment off and that would have been the end of it. So they charged me £26,000. And uh, As I was just saying, if the police break into your house and they smash all your cutlery and they destroy your house on false information or poor information at least, and then a week later, they send you a bill for the privilege. In what world? It highly
1: exerted our officers chucking that baton around. Like, yeah, yeah, like uh, on, in what on. world
0: yeah. do you get billed for authorities' mistakes? So there was that and then... So that was on the Ellesmere Port site. And then the landlord for the Ellesmere Port site, this was another issue. So the, the building that we were going into for that, we'd spent five months in negotiations. We were happy. The landlord was happy. The agent was happy. We agreed to meet on site to sign the paperwork, to get the keys. I had all my tradesmen there ready outside, ready to go in and assess the building, see what the plan was going to be. Everybody was super excited. The meeting was one o'clock. Gets outside the building at one o'clock. Nobody there. So we stood in the rain. Guess the course past one. I thought, I'll ring the agent now. Rings, nothing. I thought, guess the half past now. I don't want mm-hmm. to harass him. I don't, to look, I don't want to look like I'm a pest, so I'll wait, wait another ten minutes. I said, like, no, "This is right." Rings, 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 rings. An hour goes by. Still in the rain. All sat in our cars outside, waiting to get in. Hour and a half goes by. Two hours, maybe gets an email. Hi Nick, regret to inform you that the uh, freeholder. The bank that provides the mortgage for the freeholder who then gives the lease to the property owner who's then going to give the lease to you has decided they don't want to do business with somebody like you. That is the end of it. There'll be no further negotiations. We apologize for wasting your time. That is it. And what happened was, and this again goes back to the financial institution completely icing me out, is that we as the tenant, we deal with the agent. The agent deals with the solicitor and the landlord. The landlord has to deal with the freeholder who owns the land. The freeholder has to deal with the bank who provides the mortgage to buy the land in the first place. Everybody up this chain was happy. It got to the bank that provides the mortgage to the freeholder, and they've gone, oh, not this guy, not this guy. So we'd spent five months negotiating. Everybody was happy, and then the bank have gone, not a chance. It's amazing it even got there. I can't imagine
1: that information ever really filtered up as far as that level of...
0: Yeah, so, you know, we we, we have multiple issues there, The the... Direct debit collections company shutting us down, which had I not kicked up a fuss on social media, they'd have stuck to that, and we'd have been screwed, absolutely screwed, because we'd have had no money for two, three months. So you're talking a quarter million plus yeah. out, jobs, community, jobs. Jo- d- yeah, yeah. You've got deadly, you've got wages yeah. to pay. You've got you've got landlords to pay. You've got everything. They're not going. They, they don't care that you've had a direct debit collections collections company stop. But even when we solve the the direct debit mandate issue we then had no bank account to put the money in. So I've had to strip myself off my companies, put friends up as, as facades, as owners of the business, just so we can get a bank account, just so we can get some money back in to pay the wages for everybody else. And this is, it got to the point where, as I say, I thought, I, I thought I'd been placed on a politically exposed person list from the COVID situation. And I had a brief conversation with, I forget the lady's name. She is um, assistant to Nigel Farage, and he's gone through similar issues. Obviously, he's a, for very different reasons. Um, and she said, "Look, night, NF's gone through the exact same situation. Do you want to have a phone call with him? Let's let's see what you can sort out for you. X, Y, and Z." So I was due to have a conversation with Farage, and then my my business partner was like, "Look, Nick, because this this was due to be on GB News." My business partner was like, "No, Nick, I don't." I don't want to be associated with associated with Farage I like, look it's not about political views it's about he's he's been he's, he's been shut down by the banks for his political views I said and he's found a solution I think Lloyds TSB in the end gave him an account um I said if I can find a solution to our situation it's not political alignment it's just trying to find a solution to what's going on here anyway long story short his his team prior to what was going on had done some digging and I'm not on a PEP list so that that's that was enough for me to say, well, there's probably no reason for me to have this conversation. And if it's gonna upset mm. my business partner, then all right, let's not do it. So I didn't end up going through with the with the appearance in the end. But it turns out I'm not on a PEP list, I'm not on any money laundering list, anything, anything even close to that. It is quite literally just because of Google, as far as I can tell. Unless somebody's pulling the strings higher up. But in terms of any lists or any, you know, any black list, any black spots, none of it exists. So it's one of two things. It's either just Google or there's somebody still pulling strings. And I as much as I'd like to fall subject to delusions of grandeur and think, you know, the top men in the governments are all trying to stop me making a little bit of money. I think I think chances are it, it is just a Google issue. But that, that's something that I'm going to battle with now for the rest of my life because to sink the, to sink the magnitude of press that I have that have covered that because I've come out the back of the pandemic where I've had probably every single notable press entity in the world cover me to then get arrested. And then they've all done follow-up stories on my arrest it's going to be very difficult for me to even sink any of that. Obviously, you know, we had a conversation earlier today about PR agencies and I, I've spoke to someone and they said, look, like your, your situation is very unique in that it's going to cost you an absolute fortune to bury all of this. And then say somebody just does a, a follow-up article, you start the whole thing all over again. So I could spend 70, 80, 90 grand trying to bury these articles. All it would take is for one of them to do an update. And then I'm straight back in the same situation again. So it, it's, I'm in a situation now where, I probably won't ever able be able to own my own companies or you know push in a positive direction myself. It, it, it has become impossible for me to rehabilitate by following the, the the actual structure of the system. I'm having to live in the grey area now where I'm doing things that are bending the rules and aren't quite so. Don't get me wrong, I'm not breaking the law, but I'm having to bend the rules just to be able to live a clean life Yeah, find
1: alternative solutions
0: which is backwards i'm trying to do yeah. the right thing but you're making me do the wrong things so i can still do the right things and it, it it's you know it's a very you know my, my it certainly does dampen my the last bit of faith i had left in the system of functioning to any you know efficient extent of oh hang on i've done everything you've asked of me everything you would ask of, of, of somebody who's been to prison, who's made mistakes in their life, who's committed crime, everything that you ask of that person in that moment, of course, or in that moment of release, you know, you should be a better person. You should put, you know, good energy out into the world. You should reform. You should want to do better. You should live a clean life. You should help other people live a clean life. Everything that they've asked of me, I've done, and I've done it tenfold. And still, I can't so much as get a bank account, car insurance, a mortgage. Can't get any of it whatsoever. So I am completely locked out of the system, which... Were it not for me having some really great friends and having a really great network around me, what could I do? What could I possibly do? If I, if, I didn't have, if I didn't have finances behind me and I didn't have my social media influence behind me, I'd have no choice but to go back to what I was doing because I, I couldn't possibly get a job anywhere else. I'm far too high profile. You're going to Google me and you're not going to touch me. So I can't get a job, I can't get a bank account, I can't get a house. I couldn't get anything whatsoever at my name. So if I have to buy something now, I've got to buy it outright. I want a car, I've got to buy it outright. I want a house, I've got to buy it outright. So no no, no lender will touch me, no underwriter will touch me. But a simple fact, you Google me, and there it? it is. So I know my situation is is somewhat unique given my profile, but in terms of the system functioning properly and there being any degree of, of you know, uh, uh, to take the concept of rehabilitation serious in this country, I am found wanting so where i where i go from here I, it's it's been and, I think, it, and it sounds quite doom and gloom but I, I mean i'm in a really good space at the minute and i was going
1: to say yeah, can you find can you find happiness amongst this chaos or have you have you accepted the chaos is the chaos and it, therefore you can you can reframe
0: yeah and your it, life
1: it's, in a new perspective it, as in you're you're operating in a different different pitch now you're not you're not kicking the ball on the same pitch as everyone else <laughs> but you can be happy kicking your your ball on this pitch over here.
0: Yeah, and it it comes in waves. And this is something that I've not really spoke about publicly, but it nearly killed me in December. December was around the time when all this happened all at once. Yeah, the the eight-day period. Yeah, everything all at once. And that is, I'd say, the first time in my entire life that I've ever considered suicide. It's the first time in my entire life, despite everything I've been through, despite the sexual abuse, despite the double stints in prison, despite the neglect as a, as a child from my, my you know my, my family, December was the first time in my entire life that I'd ever put genuine thought into taking my own life to the extent where I'd, I'd, I'd written a letter, I'd hit absolute rock bottom. My friends hadn't heard from me for five or six days. I, I had my phone turned off completely. I was like, this is it, I just can't do this anymore. And it it it, it very nearly got me. And I, I, I feared if, if there had been one slight gust of wind or one uh, one additional bit of turbulence for that house of cards, I think it would have got me. And if it wasn't for the network that I have around me, that pulled me out of that hole. I, I don't think I'd be here having this conversation with you today. And it's it's quite ironic that, that was probably the lowest i've ever been in my life because it was kind of like look i've done everything right what more do you people want from me i have done absolutely everything that you've asked of me i've been you know i've been the best version of myself i've tried to help as many people as i possibly could i have done everything that you have asked of me what more do you possibly want from me and the, the the network around me pulled me out of that hole and within seven or eight days of of being forced to spend time around the people that i love again everything kind of locked up again and out of nowhere there was, there was solutions to every problem. And then within another week, maybe, maybe not even that long, I, I, I found myself in probably the happiest situation I've been in for 10 years. And to go from the absolute rock bottom to, to feel like you are one, one episode, one bit of drama away from you know, not even existing anymore to, I am so grateful for everything I have and everyone that I have around me. And that, that that was such a bizarre feeling to go from absolute rock bottom to the absolute top in such a short space of time. And I think that's, that's in no way testament to my willpower. That is solely due to the people that I've got around me and the, and the, the, the very close support network that I've got, that they took me from the absolute bottom and I, you know, in, in in the space of a fortnight, I was on top of the world again. And th- that, was, that was December. And for January and February up to where we are today, which is near the end of February, I have been in the most content, loving, happy, successful space I've been in my entire life. And this is the first time I've felt on par with how I felt when I left the, the parkour community in 2009. This is the first time I've felt that level of happiness and that level of love and contentment and community. Like I, I, I have it back for the first time in, in, you know, in 15 years I have, I have it again for the first time. And that is just six, seven weeks after being at the absolute, you know, the, 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 the depths of misery into the happiest I've been for nearly 15 years. So that, that, that's, you know, I'm really grateful for where I am today and we've had huge huge success in business over the last few months. I mean, even in December when we hit rock bottom, I was at the peak of my success by by an absolute mile. Like we are we are absolutely killing it in every avenue. But it's hard to see the glass is half full when you just keep getting hit and hit and hit and hit. And no matter how, how much good you do, you are hit and hit and hit again. But it, it's, you know, aside from that, momentary collapse that i had you know i'm i'm on top of the world and I, i am grateful for everything that i've got and there's not a day that goes by where i don't kind of stop and go it's been a long journey but look look at everything that we've got and i've seen i've seen firsthand through through traveling out the world you know traveling all around the world for seeing some of the most deprived parts of of asia and having seen I haven't spent four and a half years in prison and seen people who really have absolutely nothing. You know, it, it, it's it's not wasted on me how fortunate I am for everything that I do have. And my, my, entire, my entire drive and purpose now is just to try and bring the people that I've got around me onto the same level that I've got and just kind of have that same life again that I, as a, I had as a kid. And it, it's i i i i refer to it to to my own self at least as trying to trying to get to neverland that's what I've been trying to do for the last fifteen years is trying to get back to neverland and you know and just have that that sense of life and adventure again with people that I really care about and people that really care about me and if if that that's i'm as i say i'm very grateful and very fortunate for what i have and i i could have retired two years ago now. And I, I live, I live quite modestly. I, I have, I do have some nice things, but for the most part, I would be just as happy as I say in my two pound Primark Joggers and my, my stolen trainers. Like, and, and I would, and I stand true to what I said. I would give, up, I'd give up all the success and wealth that I have now to go back to that, to that chapter. I really would. But my, my focus now is to just try and get my friends and my family in the same position that I am now. Help them attain the same level of financial freedom that I have, which allows them to live more. And that's not because I think money is in any way, you know, the the key to happiness. Buying things is certainly not going to achieve happiness, certainly not sustainable happiness, but having financial freedom that gives you your time back, I think is the space, most valuable space thing. To, space to world. reflect on what yeah, is like, truly important to you as well, I'd imagine. Nothing that you can buy is ever going to give you long-term happiness. You can buy your Ferrari, you can buy your Lamborghini, you can buy your fancy house. But nothing is going to give you the same level of value of being able to afford to not have to work 40 hours a week in a job you dislike. You cannot put a price on that. And that—that that is that is what I want for those around me is for them to have the option to work or not work. The, the purpose of it isn't to give them the opportunity to go and buy fancy cars or fancy holidays. It's to give them a degree of passive income where they don't have to work if they don't want to. If you're working 50, 60, 70 hours a week and you don't get time to spend, you know you don't get time to share with your family or your children. And before you know it, you're 70 years of age, you finally hit retirement, you're dead in five years, that's the end. And that that, that to me is is heartbreaking to think that that is the process that most people go through and they don't really get a, a real opportunity to live life. And I had that opportunity quite early with Parkour, with the financial freedom that we had there. And it is beautiful. There is nothing like it. To not have to care about money and to just have... And it, it, it sounds... It, it sounds like it's got a, a degree of cheesiness to it, but there really is nothing like it whatsoever. When you when you have no obligation to go to your nine to five every single day, and you can just say, "Well, let's just take two weeks off and let's just go to the other side of the world together. Let's just go and explore. Let's go and experience. Let's just go and live together, rather than just waiting for Saturday when we're absolutely exhausted from the job that most people do hate." And that that's the reality of the situation. I mean, you and I, you and I are lucky enough that we enjoy what what we do, but most people do not. And to be able to take them out of that environment and put them into a space where they can choose what they do with their time. And if they choose to work, which some people do, I do, but I have the option to choose not to. And if I want to go on a six-month sabbatical and just disappear, I can do exactly that. And that's what I want for the people around me. And that, that's my that's the driving factor for me now is to get everybody back to that level where we were in the parkour community because we were young then. And we didn't really have the obligations that we do now. There wasn't mortgages to pay for. And Some of my friends have children, and they have wives and husbands, and and it's it's not the same dynamic where we could just live in our we could just live like hobos. We could just put our two pound pants. We can't we can't do that again. It's not it's not realistic at our age now. So I have to, in order for us to have that same kind of lifestyle again, we have to create an environment where there isn't a dependence on going to work to create the finances to have that that small amount. Of time, so right now it's just about create creative creating passive income for those that I care about to enable them to to live the life that they want to live rather than living the life that they have to live. So that, that that's my focus at the moment. And as I say, I'm in a, a really fortunate place that I am extremely grateful for, and I, you know I, I don't forget it for a second. Um, but my push now, up until the point where I can leave the country, is just to to set the framework in place to you know bring bring that to my friends and family as a not just because that, that's something that I want in the, in the selfless sense of I want people to be able to spend time with me when I go gallivanting around the world, but also for the fact that they are fundamental in me being in the position that I'm in today. And I've had a lot of, a lot of emotional support, but I've also had a lot of business support, free support, free help from friends when we've done, you know, some of these big gym fit outs. And it, it's been because I can't get funding and I can't get finance and I can't get loans, Everything that we've achieved, I've had to, I've had to self fund, and that has stretched me thinner and thinner and thinner every time. And we've had some some good news on that front, but it stretched me thinner every time to the point where friends have helped me, and they've turned up by the dozen to come and work for free to help me achieve what I have today. And I and I would not have what I have today were it not for them. I really would not. And that's not that's not just something I pulled out of a, a, a you know a. a a cheap quote book i really wouldn't be where i am without them i couldn't i couldn't physically have done it and i couldn't emotionally have done what i've done without them so as as far as i'm concerned they all own part of what i have and i feel morally obligated to return that to them and 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 it's and that's the way that the world should work and exactly what we said earlier a community for the people that help you get to where you are for you to forget them and just worry about the next step and the the new circles that you're in, I'd be no better than I was when I lost myself in 2014. So it's now, I'm now in a a position where I'll never have to work again if I don't want to. And it is those people that are are around me and those who've supported me and stayed loyal to me are the reason why I'm here. So it's now my, I now have a moral obligation to make sure that they're in a similar situation to me now that I find myself with the means to do so.
1: So That's my
0: focus for now.
1: I'm going to assume that, not a single one of those people
0: are from that two year period no not at all and it, it it's again that that's testament to how long many of them have stood by me and seen me go through you know the the, the cycle of life and they stuck by me with no promise of return. There's never been a conversation up until recently where it's, you know, if you do X for me, I'll I'll do Y for you long term. That's never been that's never been discussed. And it, it's similar similar to what I said about the parkour world where everyone just kind of assumes we're all in it together and there's no kind of measure of benefit. There's no kind of keeping tally on who looked out last. There's there's none of that. And that that's fortunately the environment that I've managed to find myself in again. And I think I've I I think I've done well in recreating what we had in them early days. And it's not a difficult dynamic. It, sorry, it's not an easy dynamic to create with grown adults trying to get them to adjust from what is the societal norm of you focus on you, where you're going, your bonus, your next promotion. It's hard to kind of pull people away from that, that, that societal norm, and put them into there. Well, hang on. If we all work together, if we all work individual, then we'll go up one level each per year. We all work together. Then we can go up three levels per year and if we stick together and we're loyal to each other we can just go and we can go and we can go and we can go and the only way that we you know the way that most people don't really find much success in life is because they go at it alone and that is what society has bred people to do is go at it alone you focus on you you, you know you focus on your lane whereas our power as human beings always has been working together and historically that is exactly how we've we've developed as a species and how we've ended up as advanced, advanced as we are is that we work together to get where we are. And it's bizarre that we've reached the point of, you know, societal advancement where we are now where we've kind of forget what's, forget what brought us here in the first place. And now we've gone to focus on the individual when if it, it wasn't for the fact that we all worked together and we worked in communities and we worked in tribes. That's what's got us here in the first place. And now that we found all the success, we've just kind of left them values behind or at least we've been, bred to forget them values because you know it's the system needs cogs do you feel that you're
1: trying to make up for time and experiences with love and people around you that are supportive of you and everything that you did that you maybe didn't have growing up
0: yeah and that's certainly what my psychiatrist thinks anyway (laughs) um (laughs) but yeah definitely there there was a uh avoiding my life growing up and that's and I, I always I always think it important to note that that's not something that I hold against my mother because she was so much younger than me and she did better than I ever would have done in that circumstance a million times better than I ever would have done but fact remains she was 15 years older than me I had no life experience you know it did not have the level of maturity that you would need to bring up a kid and she was a single parent and I, and I don't hold that against her whatsoever because I am 100 convinced she did better than i ever would have done in that situation but that doesn't change the fact that i spent most of my life up until my early teenage years without any real love without any attention you know my, my mom was very rarely there she worked a lot and when she wasn't in work she was asleep so i spent a lot of my time just roaming the streets on my own climbing trees uh got in with a much older crowd and that, that that's something that i've never really had and you know, when, I, when I've I've got friends who've invited me around to their homes at Christmas time and partners that I've had and they have these big family networks and everyone's really happy to see each other and it's just this big, you know, the positive environment like that. That's, that breaks my heart all the time because I've never ever had that. Like Christmas was never a thing. Birthdays were never a thing. Like I've never, I've never really had that. We didn't have Christmas dinner. Like I'd, I'd get it at my nan's once every few years, but in terms of my mum my mum wouldn't get up till 4, or 5 p.m. on Christmas day. And that's just kind of like a, what do you want? Microwave meal. Um, you know, so I, I never had any of them traditional family family values or that network or you know, that that the... I was never bathed in love, and that's probably the why that's probably why I've I've grown up quite black and white in my thought process. There isn't a whole lot of up until the parkour side of things, at least. You know, a, a lot of my thinking is is very, very polarized. And there's, there's never really been room for a whole lot of emotion. You know, I've had to learn that as an adult rather than having that as like a, a an, an innate thing as a child. Um, so I'd say very much, I'd say me, where I am now, there is definitely an element of me trying to make up for the love and time that was lost in the past and make up for the childhood that I didn't have. That's probably why I'm stuck in this this Peter Pan Neverland mentality because I never really had the, the early childhood that I wanted. Um, don't get me wrong, from my mid-teens onwards for the parkour community side of things, I had it. I'd missed out on 13, 14 years before that, which is, you know, the, the, the norm. Um, and you lost it through poor decision-making, I guess
1: you'd probably call it. Yeah. And I guess fear must drive you to go as far in the other direction as you possibly can.
0: Definitely, yeah. And I and I, I carry that burden still to this day, and I will probably always carry it for the people that I hurt during that time. Are you at peace with the past? I don't know if I'll ever be. It's difficult because it makes such a, because it's such a driving factor in my life to go the complete opposite way. It's very difficult to close that chapter because it's that chapter that's fueling me to go this way. So I I think I'm at peace with it in the sense of, I have very few regrets. And I can say that now because I'm in a very special place. And had I taken out any one of those events, I might not be here today. In, in this this capacity with this much to be grateful for with, with so many people around me that I have that are, are very, very rare individuals. And I've been banned a lot in my life. I've been banned a lot. And it, it's taken me, I give a lot to people and I, I'm I'm overly trusting, I'm overly honest and I, I share everything that I have more than I should do. And I know that, but it's the way that I like to be. I, I will give people 100% from straight away. And I will give you the opportunity to burn me. And if you do, then that's us done. But it, it, it's for every for every nine people that burn me, and it's happened a lot quite quite seriously, for every nine people that have taken advantage of me and burnt me, I find one really rare individual, which for most people, they'll get burnt by three, four, five people and go, I'm never trusting anyone again. Mm. I'm not doing this again. They'll close themselves off. But in my experience, getting burnt by them, seven, eight, nine people first to find that 10th person they are worth getting bent a hundred times over. And now I find myself surrounded by 20 odd people. And it's taken me hundreds of bands to find these 20 people. And the, the strength that we have as a, of a network as an emotional network and as a business network is completely unstoppable. And it, it's worth me being bent them, them hundred times over to find these people and that's the same advice that i give to everyone else you get get quite upset when they get let down by somebody and i'm just like look this it's part of the process this is what you have to go through to find good people And you can't say i'm never going to associate with bad people again because it's not until you give them the opportunity to burn you know, that you, you you find out who they really are and so you can't just go out and look for good people it's, it's not quite that simple you'll find people masquerading as good people who turn out not to be and i've had a few of those as well and that's taken a decade to find out who the you know the, the true colors of them individuals but you should never give up hope just because somebody lets you down and the next person does the fact that you've put yourself in a situation to be vulnerable like that and should do again is what is, is what will inevitably lead to you finding the good people of the world. And it's taken me 15 years to create a circle that is similar to the one that I had in, in my teens. And there's been a lot of hurt there, but I wouldn't take any of that back. And I, I'm, I'm at peace with, I'm at peace with the pain that I've gone through, the people have put me through. I'm, not so much at peace with the pain that I put other people through, but, you know, the journey as a whole is, is, has led me to here and I am very, very, very fortunate to have the people that I have around me. And I, if I was to change any one of them factors over the last 33 years, I might not have them people around me. I might not be in the position I'm in today. I might not have the health that I have today. So it, it would be, I think it would be naive of me to say that I regret X, Y, and Z. Um, I'd say I'm close to finding peace with the past uh, the, the, there's elements of it that I still feel like there's a, a degree of penance, so I've left to pay, and I'm doing my very best to to pay that. Uh, whether that ever goes entirely, I don't know. It, it, it's hard to say. But the, you know, on, on the flip side of that, should it ever go, because if it's continued to motivate me to be the you know the, the the best version of myself today, then maybe that's something that I need to be careful not to give too much peace to. It's Fueling the ship to never land. Ex- exactly. Yeah. So so maybe maybe it's important that I keep that reminder. Maybe it is, yeah.
1: I guess nobody will ever have the answer. You might never have the answer, but maybe that's the, the beauty of it is the, the reflection along the way. I think before we just move on to practical, what is body tech's next couple of months looking like and what is the really exciting points there? Thank you for the honesty around all the challenges. I think obviously having been suicidal myself in the past, the gratefulness that I have for the people in my life that I love and care for, and the lens through which I look at my own decision-making and what's actually valuable to me is better off for it. And it seems like a twisted, morbid thing to say because you don't want to say, I'm happy that I went through a negative experience like that mentally. And obviously ours were born out of very, very different circumstances. But I think being forced to reflect on the internal workings of, of why you found yourself in that position in the first place and how you then moved past it, the downstream benefits of that are very valuable to go on that search for fulfillment so very excited that december didn't go in the direction that you were fearful it would at one point and me too yeah having the letter i can guess will be something have you still got it have you held on to it no it's gone because i never even i never i never even wrote i never wrote one which i think is um something that scares the shit out of me i felt that despondent with the world that i didn't even
0: need to leave a message for anybody
1: yeah yeah but thank you for sharing because it's uh it's clearly you've got an amazing support network around you and I think the excitement and the forward motion is palpable in everything going on leads me to ask what's everything going on <laughs> things are opening soon and then there's a big i, I don't know if you're allowed to you to say the bit the big
0: not the de- s- not the details not, not the, the nitty details. gritty because we are yeah we're we're due to sign probably next week uh but providing everything follows the course that's been set which it looks I don't see any reason why it wouldn't at this point. We have acquired funding for the next 25 body tech sites, which are going to cost me absolutely nothing, which is is a relief for me because, as I say, I've I've spread myself so thin going from opening a site three months later, doing the next. And, you know, these are are considerable builds. These are 20-odd thousand square foot buildings kitted wall to wall. So this, this is, it stretched me and it stretched me and it stretched me and we were kind of at the point where If I was to do the next site, which is Wrexham, on my own, we run the risk of if there is a big unexpected bill, it would cause serious problems. Because I am, you know, and as I've said before, and I I always want to keep making sure I reiterate this point, I am very grateful for what I have, and I am considerably wealthy now, but everything that I have, liquid, I've dumped into assets just to build and build and build and build and build. And if I sold it all up now, you know, as I say, I could walk away and never never work. work another day in my life however the ambition is obviously to take my people with me so it's been double down double down double down double down and we're fortunate that we found this uh angel investor when we did who's come along and said look for a percentage of the business i'm happy to fund i back what you do entirely i think what it is that you're trying to do is is really special because i had a conversation with him and i and i said look i said moving forward this is how it needs to be i said if you're happy with this, we'll proceed. I said, but you take X percent, I take X percent. I said, but X percent remains to be split between my group and they don't put money in for that. So they will get my closest group will get X amount of percentage per site moving forward. And that's that's how it has to be. There's no other there's no other variation of this deal that I can allow because that, that I need to stand true to that. And if that means I have to stop now and let my funds rebuild for another six months and then go, that's exactly what I'll do, because I'm not gonna compromise this. You know, this belief that I've got and this this moral obligation that I've got to help those who have get, helped me get to where I am now to the next stage. So thinking that was a little bit of a gamble and he may, you know, he he may have took that as, uh, this sounds a bit wild. He said that I, I think what you're doing is beautiful. He's like, I, I back you all away and... and it looks like we're going to proceed in that fashion and it looks like every single person that's stuck beside me and that's helped me get to exactly where I am today is is going to be in a really comfortable position over the next couple of years. And that, that's, that for me is the, the I made it moments. It's not, you know, I don't take a whole lot of satisfaction in in where I am now. Like buying myself things doesn't really give me any kind of satisfaction. I don't, you know, I've been there and done all that a long time ago and it's not, there's not much in it for me. So for me to double, triple, quadruple my wealth, there's no, there's no yes for me. There's no number where I'd get excited. It's just it's, it's, it, My life's not going to change. You could 10x my, my net worth today. and Nothing in my life would change. Whereas to say that in two years' time, all of those closest to me, the 18, 19, 20 people closest to me are going to be on the same level that I'm on today. That, that is the we made it moment yeah. for me. So that, that, that has come at just the right time. I took my whole group out to the lake district a couple of week, a couple of weeks ago with the intention of building the entire business plan and the entire pack whilst we were out there. So there was nearly 20 of us up in the lake district. We hired a, a castle for the, you know, to, for, for, our, for our strategy for our battle plan.: we, we hired a castle in the north <laughs> uh, and, and we all got together and I said, "Look, we're, everyone needs to split into teams. You decide what your strengths are." I said, we want to take, because we've took every single costing from every build that we've done down to the last screw and nail, down to the last minute of labor, every process, everything has been documented and itemized. Because so I said, look, we need everything down to the last penny of cost, the process, who does it, how it's applied, where we can find the best bargains. And the reason, the reason BodyTech's become as successful as it has is because I've spent the last few years trying to cut out all the middlemen. And I've successfully done that to the point where Every product that we buy, every service that we get, is straight to supplier. So I now have the the exclusivity contract with the factory in China that manufactures our equipment. All of the stuff that we have in house, all everything down to signage, access systems, we have it at bare bones cost. So we're, we're opening these gyms at a fraction of what it would cost the corporates. So corporates are paying like a. a, a A pure gym or a jd or even a similar size independence is paying quite literally three four times what we're paying per site just because we've got everything down to the last penny i was like but we need to evidence this rather than just winging it because it's only ever been my money and i trust everybody around me so it's kind of just been a we'll just see how it goes we'll just we'll just play it by ear. we'll wing the life out of it which is very much me style like, but we can't go to an investor with oh yeah nick knows what he's doing i was like we need a plan yeah so we got everything packed out the entire business plan Everything itemised in terms of cost, the phases of the build, you know the 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 brand ethos, the mission statements. We got everything, and we worked through the night. We were there for two days. We worked through the night, and we got everything together and all compiled it together into this huge pack. Which we haven't even needed most of it because the 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 individual that's come on board, which presumably would be announced, announced in the next couple of weeks, he has complete faith in what we're doing, and that was. To have that conversation about what I needed to happen with the share structure and that, that's that what made me really nervous. I thought, this guy is very interested and it looks like we're going to get it over the line, but I'm yet to mention what I need to happen here. And that could have been the, yep. no, that doesn't make good business sense to me. Pull also, a pin on the grenade and right run y- away. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly, yeah. Um, so, and and the structure that we put together is, is uh, the lads will be, Giving shares from the business, those those who can't afford to contribute anything, my my the lads and girls around me will be given shares of the business, and they won't be expected to pay it back through any other means. And the dividends that come through the company at absolute cost price. So, for the I've got twenty probably twenty closest friends and friends, and I'd say fifteen of them don't really have the the finances to do anything like that, and that'll be a case of right, okay, well here's your ten percent. Here's exactly what it costs because you have the old, the the entire itemized list. You know where it's cost to create ten percent of the business. You just give us that. You just put put that back into the business over the space of so many years off the dividends that you get. So it never costs you a penny, at all. Um, and then obviously by by the end of the next two years, there'll be enough passive income in there for every single person in my network to not need to work at all. And that that to me is the right, we've done it. We've actually yeah. done it. This is this and is it's, the, and it's mapped out. This is this, this this is the moment. Yeah, and it, we've got the there is and touch wood. There's not really any way you can go wrong because the business model is, is very watertight and the overheads are very low in compared to what everyone else is putting in. So if we just follow this path, which is literally just walking a straight path in a straight line, we shouldn't fuck it up. So, <laughs> and that's exciting for everyone involved, and it and it and it it's yeah. and
1: it's exciting for the members and lots of different locations that are going to get access to brilliant gyms in places yeah. that probably wouldn't only get access as well. And I we, think is that is the is the point that we maybe haven't underlined enough that a solution is being created in places that don't necessarily have that solution. And that will have a massively positive impact on people's lives. Cause if we circle right back to how this conversation began, that's where your passion and steadfastness against authority really showed up.
0: Yeah. And we, we want to make a difference and we, we really do. And we are the people's gym. We are the people's gym. And that is plastered absolutely everywhere. And again, that, that to go back to that New York times article, that's how they referred to body sex, as the people's gym. And that was like, okay. Most prestigious newspaper in the world has as uh, covered our, our our nickname in there. That's 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 really significant. But we need to stay true to that now as we move forward, and we obviously take a different approach to the, what the corporates do in the industry. In the sense of, a lot of the big boys, for example, they charge PT rent, which for a, a for a studio, and it's important that I mention this for a, for a studio that focuses on personal training or one to ones, that is entirely just for somebody the size of. Pure Gym, JD, Total Fitness, who are making hundreds of millions. They do not need to be charging PTs 700 pounds a month for the privilege of using their facility to coach from. And that's something I've never agreed with whatsoever. So we don't charge your PTs anything whatsoever. So long as the, as how I see it is, if you're a personal trainer and you pay your membership and your PT and your friend, your clients, and he pays his membership, you both already paid for the use of that facility. So all it is, if I charge you now is a tax. Yeah. For no good reason. You are working, self-employed, trying to make ends meet, trying to find clients. And I'm going to come over to you and say, hang on, I know you've paid your membership and I know he's paid his membership, but I want another £700 a month off you because you're going, one more, one more, you can do it. So because you're trying to help this individual who pays me a membership, because you're trying to help this individual progress in their Fitness, you know, their ambitions to become healthier, to become in better shape, whatever it is, to to add longevity to their life. Because you're trying to do this person a service that's going to benefit their health, that's going to benefit their membership retention, which benefits me. Seven hundred pound a month, please. So that that's something that I've never been able to understand in this industry at all is that tax. And as I say, I get it for the smaller studios because you're paying for a a smaller niche market where you have one to one because obviously there are some disgruntled gym owners, my friends as well, who disagree with me entirely on this point. And I say, once you reach a certain size, once you're into the, the, the thousand members plus, you don't need to be charging PTs. You, you just don't. You're making enough money that anything beyond that is greed. And if you're taking, and it's hard enough in this country, in this climate to become a homeowner as it is, if you're taking the equivalent of somebody's mortgage off them per month, you're potentially the reason you're stopping that person progressing in life and being able to get themselves on the property ladder, get themselves in a comfortable position, whilst you're taking home millions in profits. I, I I can't see how anybody justifies that when we're meant to be in part of an industry that wants people to do better, want people to be healthier, we want people to progress. But if you can just add a tax on somebody for tax sake, similar to, similar to VAT that we have in the country now, it is just a tax for tax sake. There's no purpose to it whatsoever. It is just tax for tax sake. And, I, and I, I can't, I couldn't live with myself having the people's gym written on the wall and then try and extort personal trainers who are just trying to do a good service. And it is hard to be self employed. And no matter what you see on the internet, people sitting on the fancy beaches with their laptops, it is hard to be a self employed coach. And only, only a very few of them do really well. And there is plenty that pretend that they do well, that they do not. It is a hard industry to break. And I want to give those same individuals a chance. To have something that they wouldn't ordinarily have at the corporates. I want you to have that extra £700 a month. I want you to go and get yourself, you know, get yourself on the property ladder. I want you to progress. I am grateful to you as a personal trainer for creating an environment and for creating, you know, a a significantly higher rate of membership retention by making this person's progress better than it would be on their own. Like, I am grateful to you rather than the reverse that the corporates have. You should be grateful for me for having the privilege of using this space. You pay your membership. What more do you want? What more do you want? So, you know, it, it's just little things like that. And like the stuff we have done on Christmas Day at Winsford, like that, that that went really, really well. And we wanted to make a statement there that...
1: And if you can max that out by 25 sites and grow and grow and grow, the impact can, that you can yeah, have on the community...
0: is huge.
1: Tell would be very proud and probably is very proud over in Scandinavia. Oh, Danny. Danny. Yeah. <laughs> it, it all makes sense. It all makes sense. But I think that community piece all really... I mean, that, that, that's my perspective on the way you have approached things has always been born out of that community narrative and dying on that hill. Oh my, <laughs> in, I will die on that hill. In 2020, <laughs> in 2020 and with everything that's happened since, for the, the next iteration to very much have that thread of DNA running through it and the mission statement for you as an individual and for the businesses being at the core, it really makes me think very deeply on a lot of things that we've spoken about today in terms of rehabilitation, in terms of upbringing, in terms of the privilege that I've had to be able to grow up in a two-parent household and be able to <laughs> be happy the whole way through and all these things. And and it's I think it's important to, to think about and have discussions on these things. Otherwise, we can be conditioned to think one way. And that is where society starts to fall apart, in my opinion. As I'm sure you'll viciously agree on the last point. Well, one million percent agree. Thoroughly enjoyed that, Nick. Thanks for all the detail. Thanks for such honesty as well. I really do appreciate it. And um, it's, yeah, it, it, it's it's something that I'm, I'm sure everybody listening and myself, very grateful that everything is in a good place, that you're content and happy, and that you've gone through so many iterations of this battle to the point where you get to review your business plans in a castle in the north. <laughs> <laughs> Thank <laughs> Thanks you. again. Thank you for giving me the space. I appreciate it.